detective. Thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Healthcare Boy, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. That works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy podcast, the crossroads where science fiction, fantasy, and horror meet. I'm your host, Nathan Bartleball, and uh, tonight I am not joined by Bill Van Vagel, who at this point in time that you're listening to this is probably deep in the Canadian woods somewhere and hopefully alive and well, uh, just having some relaxation time with his family. But I am joined with uh, another guest, a co-host tonight. I've heard him on here uh, plenty before, and that is Victor Rodriguez. Victor, how are you doing tonight? Doing great. Thanks, Nathan. I appreciate you inviting me back on the show. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to have you here. And maybe we can even use this episode to, to kind of jumpstart. Our, <laughs> we have this kind of gestating idea about doing a podcast surrounding, uh, you know, novels and books and things like that. And just been so much going on. We haven't quite gotten out yeah. of the ground because you, you came on and we did uh, the top horror novels back in, uh, it was back in October now. But that was a lot of fun, and it was really well received. So tonight we're we're, we're partially talking about books, we're partially t- talking about movies. But I will be honest with you, Victor, that this uh, when I started the podcast, and not even when 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 Bill came back and we kind of restarted the podcast. But when I started the podcast to begin with, back in 2016, there was always an idea that I did it primarily to do about 10 different episodes. And I've done maybe five of those episodes, you know, over the course <laughs> of these many years, these, uh, these many years, uh, that, you know, the six years since the podcast has been around. And uh, one of those is happening tonight, which is an episode based entirely around everything related to Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Uh, and that includes... Uh, going back to the Philip K. Dick story that inspired it, the novel that inspired it, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, uh, where we even managed to dig up the sequel to Blade Runner, the, the written sequel to Blade Runner that had occurred in the 90s, and we'll talk about that. And then, of course, we'll talk about Blade Runner 2049 by Denny Villeneuve. And we are also going to talk about the uh, relatively new animated uh, TV show or, you know, animated series that is on, currently it's on HBO Max, uh, Blade Runner Black Lotus. So a lot of stuff to discuss, uh, really excited about it. And, you know, Victor, you had mentioned this a couple of times, but Hey, it'd be cool to do an episode around Blade Runner. And then the show showed up. And then as we were planning this episode, uh, we realized, or I realized that Blade Runner is now like officially 40 years old. Whoa. Which, yeah, just, uh, <laughs> just last week, really like, yeah, it's, it's got the Blade Runner was released the same day, my anniversary uh, is the same as the date that Blade Runner was released, uh, July 25th. That was not done on purpose by me, but oh, yeah, so July 25th, that, that summer of 1982, which I think is why it initially, as we'll probably talk about, got kind of lost at the box office because it was released. I think it was released the same day 
maybe is the thing. You know, I, I, an ET was around the same time frame, Poltergeist, maybe it was Poltergeist. I know there are a couple, there are several different movies that were released in, you know, hits were coming out all the time and only some of them are hits because, you know, the box office was only supporting so many things. Yeah, no, that sounds about right. I, I remember going to see Blade Runner at the Bruin Theater in Westwood Village. That's the that's the theater that uh, Tarantino features in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that... Uh, uh, his one of the main characters goes in to see her movie there. Oh yeah, yeah, and we see her feet. Yeah, yeah, some feet pics. Yeah, it wouldn't be a Tarantino movie without it. But yeah, um, there are none in Blade Runner, and um, it really blew my mind. Like I just being the first time you hear those those opening notes of the score and that landscape of Los Angeles with the fire. And Oh my God, I was just, uh, just totally sucked in blown away. And I've loved the movie ever since I've probably seen it once a year since, since it came out on video. Um, and, uh, just, it was really an important moment in my developing young adulthood, um, where, yeah, I started listening to a lot of Gary Newman. I was, uh, playing some, role-playing games. I was really uh, getting into the idea of uh, sort of the paranoid near future and, um, you know, sort of uh, low-tech sci-fi. Uh, and that that movie was very responsible for, <laughs> for shuffling me down that path. A proper 80s youth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so when you say you went to see it, you're talking about the original 82 release? Yeah, 82. Okay, yeah. very cool. Because I know it was released again in 92. Um, which is an interesting point because then the Blade Runner that you saw at the theater was actually different than the Blade Runner I saw for the first time because I didn't actually see it in the 80s. I saw it in the 90s, and I think it was one of those deals where I knew was aware of the film, and I probably saw bits of it, but I didn't I didn't really like get my hands on a copy of it. And it was one of those deals like the Columbia uh, movie deals, you know, where you pick like eight movies and for a cent, and then you have to buy so many movies after that. I remember yes. my dad's yes. like, let's do it. And then, you know, we were looking through and we we're like, well, we've heard a lot of good things about Blade Runner and it plays and you're just sort of awestruck by it. It brings you directly in that world. But the difference is in 82, you would have heard a Harrison Ford narration in a 92 or 95, whenever I got old of it, I wouldn't, I did not. So yes. uh, because there are so many versions, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but um Yes. So it came out in 82. We're going to talk about, uh, we'll start with the, with the Philip K. Dick story first, but I think clearly uh, for me, everything sort of rotates around that 1982 film directed by Ridley Scott. And I would say I probably watched it once a year, like you said, Victor, since I originally saw it back in the nineties. And uh, I think it was really cool that it sort of got that second lease in life in the nineties and was a movie that was, was was being talked about again and has continued to be talked about. And I think has only grown, obviously, in stature. But okay. I, for many, there's a point in time, you know, particularly in the 90s and into the early 2000s, where if you asked me what my favorite movie was, I would have probably said Blade Runner. And I honestly, it's still up there, particularly when we're talking about science fiction films. It's definitely, um, if you talk about my favorite films of all time, it's probably in the top, it, it's in the top 10 and it's in the top 10 if you're talking top sci-fi movies. It's probably the top five if you're talking about my favorite all-time science fiction films. Wow. Yeah. So. Yep. I believe it. But whether you like it or not, and I know a lot of, it's funny because a lot of critics at the time didn't like it. And we'll get into that. But it's been inspirational. But I think it in itself, of course, was inspired by the Philip K. Dick story. 
that we're going to talk about first, and which, which is interesting because what I love is so many of Dick's stories that went on to become movies, and there's tons of them, right? Minority Report and Total Recall, and of course Blade Runner and Screamers and the Adjustment Bureau. Um, and there's maybe only a handful that really kind of reflect <laughs> what he actually wrote. I think A Scanner Darkly may be the only movie that mm-hmm. like, you could sit aside the book and say, these are pretty much the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. I never thought of that. But because yeah, he he had uh, Dick had a really um, prolific adaptation via Hollywood career. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It was almost and they had and it felt like they only had to adapt just a little bit to actually be considered a Philip K. Dick adaptation. You know? Yes. So well, I, so many I, of them. yeah. I mean, if if you talk to Philip K. Dick fans uh, and fans of a movie like Total Recall, like the Schwarzenegger one, they're different. Like those, those two types of people are different. Um, but that's just one of the things that's so cool about <laughs> Dick's writing. Yeah. It's universal. Well, in Total Recall is a short story. And one of the wild things, have you read the short story? I have not. Okay. Then I don't want to ruin it because there's such, if I told you what actually happens in the short story, the book is the things you'd be like, what the heck are you talking about? Mm-hmm. How does, how does this movie exist without that in it? So I yeah. encourage you to read it. And when we do the books, we'll have to come back and, and circle back on this and discuss the short story because it would work in a much quirkier sort of movie. You know, you almost, you'd almost, it almost have to be a, a satirical sort of film in order to what happens to, to work because it would, it would not fit in the Schwarzenegger movie. Um, mm-hmm. And that's true. I think of a lot of the short stories, but what I want to do, but then the cool thing too, is Dick is writing most of these things, at least, you know, Blade Runner is from a story written in 1968. And to think about some of the things that that movie, that story is talking about in 1968, it's very cool because I think we see the Blade Runner of 82, even though it takes place obviously many years later in its future world, the Blade Runner of 1982 is very much an 80s film, you know? So it's yeah. interesting to see how uh, there's a sort of timelessness, I think, to, to a certain extent to what Dick yeah. is writing. But It's aging. It's, it's it, the, Well, the movie's aging really yeah. well. Um the yeah, I, I would say do androids dream of electric sheep? It's aging pretty well too. Yeah. Do you want to go ahead and set that one up um, for us as far as story goes, Victor? Yeah. For uh, do androids dream of electric sheep? Yeah. Um, well, I, I just wanted to start by saying I noticed um, that pretty much everything that's in the 1982 Ridley Scott movie is in the book. That's um, true. Yes, and a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> And there's a lot of stuff that is only visually hinted at in the movie. Uh, and then there's some stuff that's just ignored in the movie um, because yeah. the, I guess uh, Philip K. Dick uh, of what I've read by him, uh, like he is just an idea machine. He it's just like churning out tons and tons of really thought provoking uh, future ideas. Um, and I, I, that's what you want in a science fiction writer. So yeah, 1968. So here I, I happen to be born. Um, he published do androids dream of electric sheep which i guess is a it's a novel or a novella i can't quite tell it's not very long um i really encourage anyone listening to this to pick it up and read it um it is uh set much like the movie in a dystopian future but uh it's clarified in uh do androids dream that um the dystopia is mainly due to a nuclear war that the United States had with the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union has a very strong presence in um, yeah. Do Android's Dream. That's one way it hasn't aged that well. But um, 
there are many things in it uh, that are directly in the movie. Even the way uh, you know the main character, the main character is Deckard, same as uh, same as he is in the movie, and um, uh, he he has a way of speaking that uh, is pretty much encapsulated in the movie as well. Um, it's set in San Francisco, not Los Angeles, like the movie. Um, and I think uh, the two main things that kind of stand out from the book that aren't really touched much in the movie are um, this concept of mercerism, which is it's almost a religion that and the way it's applied to people in the in the uh, do androids dream universe is uh, it's almost like social media. So this is 1968 and the guy. Yep kind of envisions this empathetic worldwide web where people can sort of feel sympathy of other people. And this is, I think this is really important because one of the main themes of, of the book is, you know, has Deckard and, and everyone else uh, that is human in, in the book, have they completely lost their empathy in, in this world? Um, which is not hard to believe. It's, it's a tough world to live in. Um, people are going off world uh the explanation uh is uh, to get away from you know uh nuclear radiation and and all kinds of uh bad stuff on earth um and uh and the i don't think it's the Tyrell corporation of the book it's it's like the do you do you remember the name of the oh um in the in the in the book it is different um like because it's um what but is it, it? It's the Rosen Association. Yeah, the Rosen, the Rosen Group. Yeah. Um, so they uh, they are the ones making the uh, the replicants, uh, and everybody that agrees to go off world is given their own replicant um, to keep them company as an encouragement to get humans off the planet. Uh, and um, meanwhile, you know, the sad sacks are stuck on Earth, uh, and that includes uh, Deckard, our main character who is a Blade Runner. Um, he's uh, a guy that that hunts replicants down and administers the, just like in the movie, the Voigt-Kampf test that um, detects a lack of empathy so that is to such a degree from the subject being interviewed that uh, it indicates if they're human or replicant. Um, and um, anyway, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. I, I, Dick also goes into some detail about how replicants are practically indistinguishable in any other way from human beings, even if you slice them open and, uh, and, you know, you have to do the, I think the other way to detect replicants is, uh, by doing a bone marrow test. Yep. Um, which obviously that's <laughs> a little problematic to do. Um, but, uh, but yeah, same, same basic story. There are a lot of really cool things, really cool scenarios in the book that don't happen in the movie. Um, my, I think my favorite one was where, uh, I Deckard goes to, to, to a suspected replicant, an opera singer, and um, she uh, claims that English is her second language, and that's why the Voigt-Kampf test is registering her as a replicant. And um, one thing leads to another, and uh, Deckard is sort of ambushed by uh, some people who claim he is a replicant and um, they are the real police and the, the police station that he reports to hasn't existed in years. And it's this whole switcheroo <laughs> where like suddenly Deckard realizes these guys have infiltrated 
you know, to a degree that we didn't even know, like it into society. Uh, and of course, because nobody can tell them apart and they want to survive and what better way than hiding in plain sight. So yeah, all that stuff I thought was really mind blowing, really cool. Um, oh yeah. The, uh, the other thing that's in the book that really isn't discussed in the movie, although you do see a lot of animals, um, which seems strangely out of place in the movie. Um, apparently the, uh, the aftermath of the nuclear war, um, destroyed, uh, almost all animals in, in existence, um, even insects and spiders. Uh, so, um, human beings, uh, first of all, they, they buy, uh, uh, Android animals, um, that, uh, you know, behave like, you know, rep- they're basically replicant animals. Um, but, um, owning a, a live animal of any kind is a huge status symbol in American society. And, um, that's sort of the through line. Like Deckard wants to, uh, wants to buy, uh, an animal for, <laughs> for he and his wife, um, yeah, I guess in the in the movie they're divorced already, but um, but they're still married in a problematic marriage in in this book. Um, those two things kind of work really well together, I thought. But but anyway, yeah, uh, I, I really loved the book. Um, almost all the main characters are in it, plus a few more. Uh, and um, yeah, again, highly recommended. What did what did you think about it? I loved it, and now I I read it after I had seen Blade Runner, and then. Yeah. I- same. your same situation was this your first time for reading it um no se- a second but uh but okay. it was it was a while after blade runner when i read it i'm maybe not so long maybe a year or so after i had, had seen the film but i had not read it i think i maybe read it once in all those intervening years uh before rereading again so this is probably my third read through of it and it is a very short read through i mean honestly most of you will be able to probably read this given how much stuff we're talking about tonight you probably read it in the time in half the time it takes you to listen to this podcast but <laughs> Um, it is a pretty quick read. I I agree with you, and and you're right. I think there's just so many ideas being thrown out here, and that's the thing with 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 Dick. Like I mentioned, with the Total Recall stories, like the stuff that gets cut from that short story, uh, and the stuff that's that's sort of uh, just embellished in the films are are what it takes to make like a plot driven film, right? But the right. stuff that's kind of cut and taken away side could be its own individual story that sometimes doesn't always have a place, and. I haven't. I don't think I've read a Philip K. Dick story that doesn't involve at some point that questioning or that manipulation of reality, right? Like, of course, we've got the basic level where the pure existence of a replicant is a manipulation of reality, right? It's changing the idea. It this is an illusion to a certain degree, or is it an illusion? You know, is the illusion that the that the replicants aren't as human as everybody else? You know, they when when they they really very well could be, or could be more empathetic than the human being. So, but. And then the mercerism creates a second layer of of questionable reality, particularly since, you know, one of the things that also happens in this is that Deckard starts to have these visions of the, of the Mercer prophet outside of the experience, outside of the, the thing where he plugs in and, and goes through this, where you're basically climbing a hill while horrible rocks fall down upon your head. Right. Uh, he's preempting social media, but he's also sort of this evocation of religion. Like, okay, how can I boil this this down to a basic martyr syndrome of I'm climbing up a hill and rocks are falling on me? You know, it's yes. your self actualization, and it's like that. If I want to convene with the with the Almighty, what I'm going to do is climb a hill and let people throw rocks at me. He has a few of these experiences, and and sometimes he even gets himself out of danger because the prophet is telling him things, like telling him. 
hey, don't do this or, or this is about to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another level. But that bit you talk about where suddenly he's being sort of like he doesn't know if he's the replicant and he's taken to this station that turns out to be a sham. Like that's nice. a whole nother level of, of questioning reality that I think would have been very hard to fold into a film. And and I think as much as audiences may be having a hard time with this in 82, they would have an even harder time with all of those layers. And I'm not sure that they really work in the structure of like, they work in the structure of the story. I think you would have had a very, uh, a very full and very confusing film (laughs) as you tried to incorporate all of them, you know? Yes. Yes. I I really appreciate writing that is uh, where where the writer does a lot of the the homework that you don't see uh, in, in the background and then just gives you what you need to tell a single story. And this is one of those, those things where, you know, the, if you wrote everything that that Philip Dick thought about for Do Androids Dream, uh, it would be like five or six hundred pages long, but the actual book is like one hundred and fifty pages long. <laughs> right. I think why he I think why he's so good for people adapting stories where really what they want is they want to tell maybe a conventional action story, but they want a world with a lot of flavor. He's perfect for that, right? You could take these yeah. weird worlds and these weird concepts he he creates and guess what it actually works when you graft it onto a schwarzenegger movie like total recall is a really fun schwarzenegger action movie but it seems smarter than it is because it's the it's all the under structure that 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 uh dick has provided with this world and these ideas mm-hmm. and i think that's kind of what happens too with blade runner to a degree is there's such an interesting world the thing i, I that the bit about the animals is Something that I kind of, uh, you're right. Like when I watched Blade Runner, I was like, there's the owl. And we watch it flying. She's like, oh, the owl's artificial. And it's like, there's those little bits of references to animals. And, you know, uh, but you don't really see them very much in the film, you know. And and it's certainly never brought up that this is an issue. And this is right off the bat. It's like one of the most important things. Of course, what's funny is that they're, that having, owning a live animal is a status symbol because it's supposed to reflect your degree of empathy that you have as a human being. Right. And so the whole story is about a guy that's killing a bunch of would be humans who want to, who want to live and want to just have lives where they can feel and love and do all these things. And he's murdering them to buy an animal to prove his empathy. Right. And And, uh, yeah, I think that's the one thing that exists in this book that does not exist in Blade Runner is a sense of, of dark humor, like a satirical sort of humor to the whole thing. And I think that's, what's different. Like to me, if I had to put a pinpoint on how I feel about this story versus that is that Blade Runner was clearly conceived as a noir, you know, I think it's a sci-fi noir. And of course it has all of the detective elements and it's not that Deckard's not necessarily doing that kind of work, but if I were to have read this story and even when I read it and divorce it from the experience of seeing Blade Runner I don't view this as a noir story and it, it, I certainly don't view it necessarily as a detective story. You know, mm-hmm. it does feel more in the vein of like satirical science fiction or sort of, um, you know, dark social science fiction. Yeah. It's, I, yeah. It's more like a, it's a detective story about a, a man searching for himself for his own empathy almost. So yeah. Like yeah. It. And as a, as a result, it doesn't have a lot of those, um, touchstones of noir that you would expect, but that's kind of why I like it. I like actually going to this, reading it and feeling how it feels completely different in a way. And, and, and the mercerism I think is a big part of that because that element 
it's also, I think, fair to say that Dick's story and the Scott movie are fundamentally different in the sense that this seems to be making more points about, you know, it's an existential story for sure. It's making a lot more points about human social structure and how we behave within the social structure. Whereas Blade Runner, the film, is really concerned with that question of what defines a human being, yeah. you know. And it's not that Dick isn't talking about that, but it's one of like 10 ideas that he throws out. And it's right. sort of like they pluck that and say, well, OK, let's make this about the replicants, because the story is still at the end of the day about Deckard and his mundanity, really. Like, you know, like all these things that he encounters and all these sort of amazing things. At the end of the day, he just kills them and sort of yes. moves on. And he has this animal. And, you know, even at the end, when he thinks he's found this toad out in the wild after having this like realistic Mercer experience, you know, he takes it home and his wife is like, that's still fake. <laughs> it's still it's <laughs> right. still just an electric toad, you know. And so he kind of comes to the idea, well, but comes to the idea too, like, well, I guess electric things have their own, their lives too, after he's murdered, you know, all the replicants. Yeah. So there, there is a little, a little wisdom there, but, um, but yeah, it is, it's handled differently. And I think I, in a way that's more appealing in the movie, you know, Deckard comes off uh, as a much more, to me, he's a much more sad sack sort of character yeah. in this story. He's, he's almost uh, I, not just him, but I would argue all of the human beings are sort of seen as kind of pathetic, you know, because they they lack an empathy that they're never going to be able to make up for. And they have this sort of parody of empathy <laughs> that they engage in. Yeah. And yet that's the one vilifying thing that uh, in, empowers them to destroy this new life form. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so it's so incredibly smart. But I think here's the thing I've always felt about Dick is. Some people read him and like, it feels, I don't think he's inscrutable. I think he, he throws weird ideas out that can be mind bendy, but I feel like, you know, you can read a Dick story and he's pretty straightforward in how he writes, but his ideas are not necessarily straightforward, but that's kind of what I love. I feel like he's a, he's a pretty accessible author in one way. Yeah. And then you read his story and you're like, whoa, like, you know, he, he, he's almost sort of cavalier about how he just throws in. Like you'll you'll just be going along and suddenly like he just you know those last two pages he dumped a mind bending altering theory and he's onto something else right yeah would would you say Philip K Dick is one of those um, uh, singularity guys like reality is a simulation I would think so I mean didn't he even sort of posit that like he had a lot of bizarre sort of theories. And then I also don't know what were his own theories and theories that people have also postulated about him. I remember, I can't remember if it was one of his novels or if it was something I, I read where he had, a, it was either a story or an idea that we are all living basically in a similar, that, that, that the world never moved beyond medieval England and the rest of everything is basically the devil's simulation <laughs> that yeah, uh, has yeah. allowed us to believe that, that time is marching on and we're continuing to live and grow and evolve but uh, the time of God is nigh, so as long as the devil can keep us in this simulation, we will never see the truth and ascend. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I. That, I mean, greater brains than I say that that is more likely than what we perceive as reality. But um, I don't know if it really matters. <laughs> I, mean, I don't. I'm afraid if I think about it too much. Yeah. I mean, if, if the simulation's that good, where you know people are satisfied having mundane lives then you know what's the difference my brain says a steak is yummy i'll take the matrix yes <laughs> nice 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, the, Philip K. Dick is a guy you could probably we could probably literally have an entire podcast on. He may also be the only person I know that wrote a short story uh, with from the perspective of a brown loafer that had been <laughs> brought to life. So uh, I think it was called like the sad short life of the brown Oxford or something like that. Oh. But um, a, a great author and a great story, and I highly recommend the book. And, and again, as you pointed out, and I kind of was always thought that myself, it's more of a novella. Um, it's, it's a very easy read. You're not talking about a doorstop book or anything like that. Yeah. And definitely, if, if you're a fan of Blade Runner, definitely recommend you read this if you haven't already. Yeah. And, and I'd, I'd actually say if, even if you, if you're listening to this uh, episode and for some reason you actually don't care that much for Blade Runner, I, and, but you're a fan of science fiction, I'd say it's a must, it's a must read. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, because it does, it does the same story in a slightly different way. Um, and so that really, that, that that's 1968. And then we move to 1982 when we do have Blade Runner. And I mean, uh, I think we can look at this from so many perspectives, but, uh, there are a ton of creative people involved in this. And I think that, I don't know the entire backstory on this. And I still, I still have, I, I own the, the new, like uh, a recent 4k release of the late runner, but I do have the big box set that came out. I guess it was probably in like 2006 or 2007 that has something like eight different cuts of this film. I don't know. Yes. yes I have that too. Yeah. And it, I admit that was probably one of the coolest uh, Blu-ray or DVD releases that they ever had because this was a movie I'd heard about for years, having so many different versions uh, and, and, and versions that fundamentally changed the movie, right? Like fundamentally yeah. changed how you view the film. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit, but I mean, it, it, there are so many different facets to this movie and to its production that that in and of itself is fascinating. And then the amount of work that goes into it and the amount of creative people involved in it. I mean, it's adapted by Hampton Fancher and David Peoples, who, who themselves have done a lot of work. Um and uh, and I think uh, people's worked later on a movie that's supposed to take place in the Blade Runner universe called Soldier with Kurt Russell, which oh, yeah, which is not at the same level no. as this film. Although I admit to kind of enjoying it in one of those like, hey, it's on Sci-Fi at two in the afternoon. Yeah, kind of, it's, kind not, of ways. it's not bad, but it's, yeah. it's no yeah. Blade Runner. Yeah, and of course Ridley Scott at this point is coming off of Alien in '79, and and probably the other big production wise film that he had directed prior to this that would have been something that would prepped him for this was the duelists which i think is a really good little scene uh probably little scene these days anyway movie that had i um was it harvey Keitel and and keith carradine yeah that's right yeah and uh a good film a, a period piece but i i remember hearing um you know scott talk about this and he had done a period piece he did a horror film with alien he gets to do this kind of more sci-fi film with Blade Runner. And then, you know, the next genre he tackles is fantasy, kind of when he does Legend, Legend um, yeah. uh, in, in 86. But, you know, the the plot is, as you pointed out, it is very similar in the sense that it, it is Los Angeles instead of uh, San Francisco. And we don't really have the apocalypse element. It, it, in fact, I think what's interesting about this film is it appears to be that the world has been so, uh, you know, that everyone's been so fruitful and so multiplied in all these areas, including their technology, that they've essentially just choked the world out. You know, I think we're seeing a world yeah. that is 
uh, bursting to the seams with so much humanity they can barely hold it anymore. And while people are traveling to the off-world colonies, uh, it's weird. You get the feeling that's presented in this film is, oh, it's like a vacation. It's like an escape. And everyone else is just sort of trapped in this. To me, the world of the Blade Runner film is, because Ridley Scott gets to visualize it, feels so much more bleak, bleaker and darker than the world that's presented. I think even in the post-apocalypse world that's presented in the... um, in the novel, this seems like a really lousy place to live. I mean, it's yeah. a visually beautiful world from a certain sense to look beautiful in the sense that uh, when I'm looking at it, uh, particularly at the time, like if you've never seen it, when it came out in 82, and we've seen a lot of movies that look like it now, but when even in the 90s when I saw it, it's like, wow, I've never seen the wor- a world like this developed with such attention to detail. So it's yeah. visually beautiful to see but you can see how it would be a horrible place to actually live, or uh, it would be a very difficult place to live and retain any sense of humanity and hope and and, and empathy. And you still have, uh, you know, Rick Deckard is the is the Blade Runner, and he's he is more in that mold of the Harrison Ford action hero. I think you know I, he's definitely uh, or in the mold of the Sam Spade sort of detective that you would expect. Right. From a noir like he just has that feel i think it's very cool he's got the, the coat and he's got the kind of attitude and he of course he's sitting there eating chinese noodles when we first meet him you know mm-hmm. and the the whole ambiance of the film feels very much like a detective story and yeah. but the opening scene that we actually see doesn't involve deckard it involves uh um uh, holden and he holden. is a blade runner who's interviewing somebody at the Terrell Corporation. He's using this Voight Comp test, which is that empathy test that's going to decide whether you're a human being or not a human being. And it's being applied to uh, to someone. And then we learn that that someone is a replicant in the opening sequence. And I think that opening sequence and and the uh, and Leon is the, the guy who's being interviewed there. He's played by Brian James. And he does, of course, turn out to be one of the replicants. I think that scene is so cool. Uh, because it happens directly after the opening scape where we see that city skyline and those plumes of fire and the, right, the plumes of fire. fire. Yeah. The score ro- rocking out. And, and then you see the fire reflected in, in an eye and, oh man, I, I thought, I always thought that, that, that that's probably Holden's eye or Leon's eye, you know, a, a reference to the Voight-Kampf test, but I think also on a symbolic level, like it's before you know any of those details about what the movie's about or, or who the replicants are or any of that stuff, you just have that um, that exposition at the beginning about what replicants are and what Blade Runners are. And then they show you that, that cityscape. And um, it almost reminds me of, you know, like, you know, the eye symbolizing the presence of God and um, the eye is a human eye. So it's like, Humanity has gotten to the point where he has dared to create life. Um, I always thought that was a, a really cool way to think about it because that really sets the scene for the rest of the movie. Like that's that's what it's about. It's the hubris of mankind. Yeah, I totally agree because it's it, it's almost like transcendent and it's bringing you into the world and it can almost be our eye, the observer's eye, right? You're seeing this world. Uh, but then towards the end of the film, we have that classic, monologue that we'll, we'll get to a little bit but you know that the roy batty gives and he says you know 
I've seen things, you know, and, yeah. and what he's expressing in that speech sort of is the same wonder you feel you get when it's just an eye. You don't see a face related to it. And you're right. And you know, what's funny, Victor. It's like, I think similar to what you said, when I saw that film, I, I got that sense of this is an eye taking in this, this world. And it does have an almost like omnipresent view. I never once tried to figure out, was it, was it Holden's eye or was it, you know, uh, Leon's eye. I don't, I, it just didn't seem like that was a part of the equation in a sense. Like mm-hmm. after the film, you sort of think, oh, well, who is that? That You know, but we don't see any reference for them. We sort of just jump in and there they are. And we do see sort of an eye being scanned, but that image seems to stand apart from it in a sense. And I don't think I ever really considered that much. It just seemed like a thing that happened. You know? Yeah, I, I I don't know. I think it was Brian De Palma that mentioned this in in a documentary. But he was like, you know, if you look at any good movie, the first few seconds are generally an overture of what the movie's going to be about. And uh, sure enough, the more movies I watch these days, that's true. Right, and this is even Blade Runner with, like you said, an opening credit scroll scroll that happens. And what I love about the soundtrack and um, like. The version I've always seen, it has that little, like, I don't know what the name of the company is, but it's like Brain Tree or something. And it's mm-hmm. got the little, like, it looks almost like a fax image that comes down of the tree. And you're just like, trr, trr, trr. you hear this, like, robotic oh, noise. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure that's just some cheesy graphics that were used for a company in the 80s. But it seems to fit so well because it just, it, it, co- it there's an artificial tree sort of coming onto the screen, one, one, like, line or two at a time. And then... If it didn't, if that wasn't a real company and they just made it for Blade Runner, it's perfect. You know, it would yeah. fit perfectly because it creates that sense of artificiality. Boom, you head into that scroll and the Vangela score is starting. And then you get that last line. We don't call this extermination or, or termination. We call it retirement. You know, yeah. It's not murder. It's retirement. And right. I think that might be the only line in the film that has the same kind of dark humor that... Uh, that Dick has, you know, and after that, it's a real, roughly a serious affair. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, it's just, it's a very kind of dark uh, action oriented film from that point. But that opening scene where he's questioning Leon and he's, he's pointing, Oh, there's a turtle and it's on its back and you're not helping. Well, what do you mean? I'm not, what's a turtle, you know? And that exchange is so good. I think it sets up the movie in such a way where you're instantly drawn in. You've seen there's this big world full of special effects it's very very well realized and then you have this this uh we we get to see this void contest and we see the desperation sort of exists in leon we see how the test is applied we see sort of the absurdity of the test in some ways and then we have that moment where deckard gets called in and he gets to go to uh, uh to bryant's office and talk with him and uh, and of course, M. Emmett Walsh, who's always awesome as well, was kind of perfectly cast. I think at this point in time, he was probably coming off of what Blood Simple, or maybe he was just right. making Blood Simple. Yes, and um, uh, he's just chewing the heck out of the scenery here, and he's really, he's really there just to sort of deliver this this exposition dump. But he yeah, does it so well. They're, they're kind of growling, like he and Harrison Ford are growling at each other, trying to see who who's the more cynical person. <laughs> yeah, and he and he and he's and he's. It's so funny because I wonder what Walsh thought about this because essentially, uh, all he all he's really doing or has to do here is he's like laying out who the replicants are and the all four colonies, and he's literally reading like their stats. And he's like, talk about Beauty and the Beast. She's both. You know, he's got like <laughs> yeah. probably some of the worst dialogue in the film, but the way he delivers it the sweaty he's like 
he's like the king of sweaty, grizzled, sort of like sketchy police chief. Totally <laughs> on the other side of the on the other side of the uh, desk there, and that whole seed I think works mostly because he because he brings like you said a cynicism to it. Like he yes. can barely, you know. Conceal his contempt for what's happened for, for this entire situation, and but that also underscores this idea of how how little care there is for these replicants, right? Like we we understand almost everything we would need to know about how this world views these these creations from the way he presents this information to Decker. Right. You know, it's just a run of the mill uh, meeting. You know, here's a rundown. It's like here's here's what you need to do. Here's who you need to kill, and but in interspersed in between this, we start to see these characters. Uh, Roy Batty, who's played by Rucker Hauer, who I don't think has ever really been better than he is in this film. Um, although he's he's been very good in other things too. Um, but I think he gives such an, a, a very interesting performance here. And of course, we have um, Joanne Cassidy, and we have uh, name just escaped me. Oh, uh, Daryl uh, Hannah. Daryl Hannah, thank you, <laughs> the Splash Mermaid. Uh, yeah, and we have Daryl Hannah, and they. They, their, their performances, they don't have a ton of lines. They are, they're the replicants. We don't see them excessively. Uh, and, of course, Scott has them under a certain amount of makeup, particularly Pris, who's played by Daryl Hannah. But mm -hmm. I think they, and their performances are primarily physical. But I think that the way they, they're presented uh, and, and the way they're used in the film, these are good performances. And we do develop, I think, a decent amount of empathy for them. They are not evil masterminds that want to come down and destroy the Earth. They specifically want to live. I mean, they will kill if they need to, but they are hunted people on the run. And we, 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 we understand very quickly that even though they have quirks and idiosyncrasies and things that they can't do anything about, they are more or less people, you know, we're never, they're never presented to us as monsters or even as sort of Frankensteinian creatures. They're talked about in some, in that, in that context by the human characters. And, and, and towards the end, I think Batty does kind of get, get his Gothic on, you know, <laughs> towards the yeah. end there. Yeah. And the Tyrell building. Yeah. I think that prior to that, I don't know if you felt that way, that while they're menacing, they definitely feel human and i think more human than the other character human characters the, the potentially human characters we've met to that point yeah it's it's really interesting how the this i i would say that ridley scott is totally on their side in the yeah. narrative like he wants you to feel and the, the empathy goes up and up and up except for one or two scenes where the replicants just murder people um you know it's all about survival and their thirst for knowledge which is a human trait and um meanwhile deckard um just sort of flounders in his cynicism and uh roughness and unlikability for most of the most of the movie until the very very end um where it seems like he has some sort of revelation um but one of the things i absolutely love about this movie that caused me to look at narratives in a different way is the ticking clock is not an actual ticking clock of time it's just that there are these, I guess, I don't know, if, is it five or six? <laughs> six replicants. Um, but, but whatever, this group of replicants that Bryant lays out to Deckard at the beginning, the ticking clock is going in your mind because every time he retires one, uh, 
you know, he's getting closer. You, you know, you're getting closer to the end of the movie um, because it's like, well, there's, there's, once there's no more replicants, there's no more movie. Um, but, uh, but the way he, the way that, that Ridley Scott kind of dr- draws out the climax and the second act uh, with, with that clock of replicants dying is great. Um, it is a very slow movie and yet, it is completely entertaining. It's fascinating. And every scene, even after watching it like 30 times or more. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I just think that at this point in his career, like Ridley Scott had absolutely everything a person needed to make this a masterpiece. And that's what it is. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, I agree 100%. I think it is a, ma- a masterpiece. And I think that, you know, it's a masterpiece on several levels. And I think that one of the things that uh, that happens with it is visually it's stunning, right? And yeah. from an oral perspective, it's stunning. And then you can't get away from that. Anybody who sees this film knows Ralph. It's overwhelming, I think, in the way it looks and the way that it feels. And I think because of that, that's one element that led it to when it I remember Siskel and Ebert reviewing it. And I don't think Siskel even liked it. And Ebert gave it a positive review, but he basically was like, it's a special effects picture. And I don't yeah. think that that's accurate. And I think I think time has bore out that that's not an accurate way to perceive the movie. Uh, but I do know a, a number of people who just don't really like it that much. And I think they perceive what they see as a certain coldness or a certain emptiness uh, in the film to reflect that it really isn't about very much, that it is just sort of uh, artificial, maybe like the characters it's about. Whereas I feel that that... Uh, that the coldness that exists, particularly, I think it is applied to Deckard's character. And then a character that we haven't talked about too much, actually, that exists in both forms is the character of Rachel that yeah. Deckard meets when he and, and she's a very I don't think she's as significant of an element. Uh, she is. A, she's an insignificant plot element in the book, but I don't think she's as, as significant as a uh, as a true element of the story as she is in is Blade Runner, where she becomes very sort of front and center to what's right. going on with Deckard and to the story at large. Uh, the irony is, I think, in some ways she relates to, the, she dovetails with the replicant story better in the book, whereas here she really doesn't. Uh, but she's a, she's she's pivotal to what's emotionally going on uh, with Deckard. But Rachel, when he meets her, she's, the, she's Eldon Terrell's uh, assistant, and Terrell basically asks that, hey, go ahead and try the Void Comp test on her. I just want you, I just want you to prove that it can be done uh, on a human, and I want to see it, you know, uh, uh, a negative uh, before we see a positive. You know, so show me that she that it, that it proves that she's not a replicant. Of course, he conducts this test. Rachel's asked to leave the room. She's played. I don't know if I mentioned, but she's played by Sean Young here. And when she leaves the room, uh, Terrell confesses to him something that isn't that surprising to us after we've seen her behavior is that she actually is a replicant. Right. And she's not a a uh, a human being, and that startles Deckard because he wants to know how can she not know? She doesn't know. He's like the reason that she passed the test, or you know, but that she's a replicant is that she doesn't know that she isn't. Right, and, and she's portrayed as as sort of a femme fatale type figure in this noirish narrative, but she is not. Uh, dangerous to Deckard's existence, except symbolically in, in which, you know, in, in that, you know, Deckard is sort of torn between 
whether or not he should be retiring these almost human creatures that are striving to live. And then here comes Tyrell with a next level replicant that's even more like a human being uh, to further confuse uh, Deckard and and the audience. Like, is, is what he's doing right? And, you know, uh, yeah, the first version of Blade Runner I saw in the theater was the the 82 one with the narrative. And there is a, a cool line as much as um, the narrative is a little cliched. And I know Harrison Ford famously hated it, um, but there is a really cool line that he has at the very beginning of the movie where uh, he's ordering stuff at the uh, at, at the diner. And um, and he goes and the voiceover is like sushi. That's what my ex-wife called me. Cold fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it sort of sets up the fact that, yeah, he's, he's kind of a, a nothing like he's, he's just, he can't interact with people anymore. And maybe it's his job that drove him to that, or maybe he was that way to begin with. And that's why he can do the job, but either right. way it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> the way it works. That's funny. And I, you know, I've, I didn't see that initially, but I have seen it since. And I kind of, and I know a lot of people who, when they first saw it, appreciate it. I do like that it does put that story in. The only issue with it, I think, is it puts it firmly into, hey, this is almost like a, an old, like, kind of cheapy whodunit, you know, not, not that it's truly cheap, but it has that, you know, it, it changes the identity of the story just a little bit. And it puts it more for, firmly in that pulpy noir sensibility that I, I prefer the, the narration not being there. However, I think, because I think the movie in some ways speaks so well for itself. And I do, I, I, I really liked a lot of what Ridley Scott did with the director's cut. And of course, we'll kind of get yeah. to the point here. One of the most interesting ideas that was that's produced here is that the new version, this next level, can almost pass the test. You know, that it takes twice as many questions for Deckard to prove that she's a replicant and even after so she still doesn't isn't aware of it it's because she's had these memories implanted and the 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 memories are supposed to give her this emotional cushion you know that okay they don't have enough time to build these memories so we 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 put them in now the minute you introduce that idea it creates the possibility that everyone from bryant to decker to everybody could be a replicant right if i uh, if i don't know if i have been given memories and i don't know where they came from how do I know they're mine? And that's that simulation element, you know, you're talking about uh, to, no, to a degree. I, yeah, no, I disagree. Um, yeah, I, I, I do. I know that there is a controversy of who's a replicant and who isn't. But I think that in the logic they set up in the movie, um, as opposed to the book, because in the book, they talk about implanted memories, too, and they're more common. Uh, but in the movie, the way they set it up is the highest form of human technology, which is Rachel, has the implant, is the first person with implanted memory straight off the assembly line at Tyrell, and she's experimental. So that tells me that nobody else in the movie could be at that level where they have implanted memories. But, you know, it's an assumption. I mean, obviously, they don't, they don't say that as a fact, but it, it's always bothered me about the that I, I not bothered me, but I, I just I just think it's cooler. Like the movie's cooler if Deckard's human and he's just an inhumane human and he's struggling with his own sense of existence and and his job is ironically terminating these machines that are striving for humanity. Uh, that's a great story, uh, and. Uh, Rachel is a perfect, um, a perfect midpoint um, that, yeah, yeah, fun fatale that not, not only isn't dangerous to, to Deckard, but saves his life. 
uh, on one occasion. So yeah. Anyway, that's just my two cents on that. But I, I know that Ridley Scott has has spoken differently and the, the subsequent cuts of the movie have gone to explain what he said. <laughs> well, I, I think they, they could or couldn't. So, so my point is not that they are. Um, so so I think the, the, the only issue with that is there's the assumption that Terrell is being honest, although he just wasn't honest with Rachel in that moment. Like, so Deckard, the impression that she is the first of her kind is only as good as Terrell's word, which yeah. he's already proved to be a liar. So That's I don't true. think that really matters. Uh, and I actually agree with you. I don't think the story, and I've actually never thought the story, even in the director's cut, I know what Scott was trying to do, but I don't always agree with Ridley Scott. <laughs> I yeah. think that the story works best and almost in a certain sense only works if Deckard is not a replicant. Like it might be cool to think about him being a replicant. And I know there are a lot of these dreams, but I think th- some of this stuff still works without Deckard being a replicant. I mean, I think what we are, what's, what's demonstrated, my point is when that plot line comes up and it's pointed out that she has implanted memories, you know, everybody could be manipulated. It just creates that certain sense of paranoia. Like Deckard has no good reason necessarily. And if that's true and they've been given these memories, what makes them not human? You know, I think, I, I just think it creates that level of questionability for every character in the film and if if Deckard is questioning his own existence, and maybe it shouldn't be the question of if I am I a replicant, but what differentiates me from a replicant? You know, if they right. if they've been given these memories. So, um, but I think since you brought it up, let's talk about that a little bit because you're right. I think in the original film, uh, the ending is a relatively hopeful one. You know, I don't know that the endings are that drastically different, but I, visually speaking we actually get a small reprieve from the rain, right? In, mm-hmm. yeah, in, the yeah. in the film. And I actually kind of like that about it is you get that moment and Blade Runner 2049 sort of follows up on that motif a little bit and, and, and that thematic through line that we have that Deckard comes to a place where he recognizes uh, in a sense, the legitimacy maybe of the replicants. And it's something he seems to be sort of learning all along the way, he does become romantically involved with Rachel. He mm-hmm. does seem to show some level. There's a growing sense of empathy for the replicants as he comes across them, you know. Uh, and, and maybe it's not always his empathy, but I think it's some of our empathy, too. The way that Joanna Cassidy's character is killed is particularly sort of brutal um, yes. and, and and tragic. And we see, you know, we, in, in most cases, they are having these flight or fight responses you know there's no there's the only scene i think where we really see a lot of uh, sadism uh well there is the moment where they take james wong's like jacket away from him you know when he's in oh, the, the yeah. james hong's uh, jacket i really thought uh i like seeing him by the way he's a cool little scene where he's the guy who makes the eyes and the only thing he does is make eyes and um i but all those little details are very cool but when we get to uh the when the replicants do finally infiltrate uh, Terrell via uh, Sebastian JF Sebastian, who's uh, who's played by William Sanderson here, and he's a he's a, I think that's where we do see when you know when uh, ultimately Roy Batty kills both Sebastian and Terrell. I think that's where we do see some cruelty that is borne out more than simply survival. And right. well, well, he's he's making sure there's no witnesses, I guess, but. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, Roy always seems a little psychotic in yes. the others, not so much, maybe Leon a little bit, but, uh, but from the very beginning, like the way 
uh, Howard delivers the lines. Yeah. It's just like, there's something up with him. Like it, it's like the dude that plays Merlin in Excalibur. It's like, is that like Nicole Williamson announcing stuff that way? Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's, there's a certain madness to it. And I think that is where, as the performance goes on, I think that's where Howard is kind of bringing in some of the, the, of the, the postmodern Prometheus, uh, not the postmodern, sorry, there's X-Files. I've been watching too much of that. The, the modern Prometheus element, the, uh, the, the the Frankenstein's creation, right? That he's yeah. just not exactly right. And that his, and we witness that when he's face to face with Terrell and he kind of kisses him and then crushes his skull, you know, which is right. a really crazy scene, but it's also, I think a really powerful scene, but I, I don't think I would want Roy Batty any other way in a sense. Right. I like that he is this sort of flawed thing and he sort of understands it, but it doesn't kind of keep him from being sadistic. And I think you're right. Like what we see with Leon is very much a, 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 a like a, a, a cage tiger, right? Like he, right. he's, he, he's always uh, nervous and twitchy and he's just, it's, this is what living in fear looks like. And that's what, and, and that's sort of what, what Roy conveys to, to, to Deckard at the end, that this is what living in fear does to you, you know, that yeah. living constantly with the shadow of death, even though you're not supposed to be able to die in a traditional sense over your head. And I think that's part of what gets through to him. That's what he's trying to illustrate to him, but you need almost a psychopath for that. And I think, does he get a little, little Gothic monster towards the end? I think he does. And I think that maybe yeah, that scene totally. tips over more than it maybe needed to, but let's face it, that apart, that like Gothic apartment that he's in and where he fights uh baddie is really cool. It was really intense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome, and I think I think it makes sense um, within the movie why Batty is played that way. But uh, yeah, when when he murders Tyrell, um, and and then he's in the elevator escaping after after the murder, he strikes this pose that they hold for a few moments um, where he is totally Frankensteining out, like yes, you know. Yes. And I, I always interpreted that as he's in touch with his own evil side. Like, you know, he's, he's um, self-actualized, uh, you know, a self-actualized being that that is, you know, happy with every part of himself, including the murderous part, uh, unlike Deckard, who's like completely disconnected from his inner workings. Um, he's just killed God as far as right. he's concerned. Right. So, so in, in a way he's unstoppable and it makes sense that he's the last surviving replicant because he's the most resourceful, the most confident, um, and probably the most physically capable. And I don't know that it should have surprised me. Uh, and I guess guys, it's clear at this point, we're just spoiling all these things, you know, oh, yeah. definitely, Sorry. definitely. No, I, I, I don't think that maybe there's an expectation for anything else. And I will put a, I'll put a, a more specific one at the very top of this, uh, episode, but, uh, at the end, you know, I will be honest with you, Victor, that when I saw this movie for the first time, actually kind of, I mean, I didn't expect Deckard to die, but it actually kind of surprises me when, even though it seems conventionally like that's obviously what's going to happen, it actually surprised me when 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 Batty pulls him off the, the roof right, and, like, sets him down. I, you know, it, it, maybe it's just the forcefulness of the filmmaking to that point is that, you know, I'm suddenly like, wait, why? <laughs> what? what's going yeah. on here and but yeah, i think I, it's the genius yeah. of it yeah I, I think it could go either way i, I think um you, you you could say you know maddie may have grabbed uh deckard as he was slipping off the roof 
uh, to prove his physical superiority to humankind. Or you could say that Batty actually had the greatest character development in the movie, and he learned empathy at that in those last moments. And uh, that's what the the voiceover again um, says in the in the version with the narration. Uh, but uh, it, it could be a moment where, uh, despite his murders and um, and thirst for survival, in Batty's last moments, he has decided to save a life, even if it's not his. You know, if he can convince this Blade Runner, you know, that, that because I think this is, this is again, a situation where people are like, oh, well, Deckard recognizes that, maybe, does De- or not Deckard, excuse me, does Batty recognize that Deckard, the, the replicant argument that, okay, if Deckard's a replicant, I don't know, win over is the right word, but if I can convince and I can convey to you the struggle here and I can convince a, a blade runner who kills us that that this you know that we deserve to live that maybe I've accomplished something now that might be a bit of a stretch but there is that element that if he can if he can convince now all the play all that all that decker does is quit and another guy takes his place but you know yeah. theoretically there is something there but you're right I think that ultimately that's what it appears to me is there's a moment of recognizing human life. And it's backed up, I think, a lot by what I think is like one of the coolest moments in science fiction is when he gives that speech where he, you know, earlier, he's very forceful and he just says to Terrell, I want more life, fucker, you know? And yeah. uh, it's very forceful. And here it's 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 more like a plea. It's not even a plea. It's a, basically a eulogy at that point, right? It's, it's for yeah. the life that has gone from him. And when he talks about, the, you know, I've seen these things and the tax ships on the on this, uh, the you know, off the coast of of uh, Rhine and all these things that he says, like the and and like it's beautiful, and you can almost visualize what he's saying. And the combination of that with Vangelis's score, and the again, so a few moments of you don't quite have the sun completely coming up, but there's a there's a there's a moment where there's even the littlest hint of light, right, like in yes. the sequence. And uh, is it a little much that he like releases the the dove or the pigeon or whatever these holdings maybe a little on the nose? But I find that such a beautiful scene, and he ends with the, the, the thing about the memories being gone, like tears in the rain. That was very affecting to me the first time I saw that film. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's it, it sticks the landing. And I I think I think it's that level of empathy and that question all through the film uh, that cements it as a masterpiece and not as just a good action film right because yeah. it's ultimately about something i think anything that happens after that point in a sense doesn't even matter right like so in in both versions essentially deckard goes back gets rachel and leaves and uh in one version we see them actually heading into canada right like they, they get mm-hmm. out yeah. and they they move on and you have a basically happy ending the other ending is uh they they basically leave as well but we see Deckard see this little, uh, you know, it's 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 something that Edward James Olmos's character has made. Gaff has made. He the whole movie we see him making these little, uh, paper, you know, uh, origami little characters. And you know, in in the '92 version, basically what happens is Ridley Scott takes footage from Legend of Unicorns and pops it into Blade Runner that become uh, the dreams that. Deckard has and Deckard's dreaming of unicorns and Gaff makes a unicorn and in in a realist sense that's about the only like quote-unquote like proof that we have and we see Deckard pick it up and look at it and kind of nod I think there are a hundred different explanations that could go to explaining that um 
particularly in a world where we seem to be able to look at and view and vision and 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 uh, analyze people's thoughts and motives and and, and and dreams, it doesn't seem like it would be that big of a big of a you know a stretch for that to happen. It doesn't seem to be conclusive of anything. I I do like the way it's handled in the film where we sort of have a uh, some sort of recognition by Derek and the screen goes dark. I sort of enjoy that a little bit more than the fully seeing them escape away into Canada and stuff like that. But um, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I understand. Like, I, I think that, um, yeah, director's cuts. Okay. So this is one director's cut that I really liked. Um, usually I don't like them. Usually I opt for the producer's cut which is usually the shorter <laughs> yeah. movie, um, uh, because that that is less boring um and you know um when i saw the the reissue and you know when blade runner toured around theaters again in the 90s with uh, the director's cut uh i i kind of figured oh the producers probably said oh ridley you can't end it like that like that everybody's just going to be sad and they're going to hate the movie walking mm-hmm. out of the out of the theater so you know let's put some footage which supposedly comes from uh stanley kubrick's uh outtakes from the shining that, that <laughs> where, where they're you know zooming across the forest yeah yeah <laughs> uh, i mean it's a warner brothers movie i don't know if there's any truth to that but um it's a good story <laughs> but yeah i mean there is that cue at the end, which is very different than all the other music in the movie. And uh, it does give you sort of a hopeful thing. Yeah, they escaped. You know, he, you know, Tyrell's gone. So he took Rachel and, and ran away. And that's, that's the movie. Um, but yeah, that works too. I, after having seen that and lived with that a few times, then seeing the director's cut in the 90s with the uh, elevator close and it just turns to black, uh, I was thrilled. Like yeah. I was like, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and then boom, that like the darker Vangelis music sort of kicks in, right? Like the hunted yes. music. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, what's going, he's going to be now, right? Is hunted. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, man, we should, we should talk about the music. Cause I, I know that there, there were electronic scores before Blade Runner, but nothing like this. I mean, uh, you know, there was, you know, Wendy Carlos did uh, Clockwork Orange, where, you know, there was a lot of sort of electronicified Beethoven <laughs> in it. Uh, but this is just wall to wall, soundscapey, like the modern type of scoring uh, movies happened in this movie. Like it, it, it just, there's like tons of reverb. It sounds like nothing else. Uh, and it is great. I just I absolutely love the music. Um, it was compounded. Like my love of it was compounded by it being really difficult to find the soundtrack for the longest time. Uh, now, of course you can just listen to it on YouTube or whatever, but, um, man, it is just so unique. And I, I read an article right before the show, uh, about how the way Vangelis scored it was he just, um, he scored it in real time. Um, probably not all of it, but a, a lot of it being scored in real time, he was just reacting to the finished film and, you know, recording what he thought should be the music at that moment. Um, and uh, maybe that's why it sounds so unique. Uh, definitely he, he got a very cutting edge synthesizer. I don't know which one it is. I'm not that much of an audio nerd, but, uh, (laughs) 
it was an amazing sound that people have been trying to replicate in projects I worked on many times <laughs> since then. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's absolutely great. It's oh, it's also a score where there's it's part sound design. Like there are scenes where the like the, the those floating cars, the spinners uh, go up, and the music goes. Yes, yeah, even in the very beginning, like uh, yeah. yeah. It's uh yeah it it hadn't hadn't never been tried and I I think um, in addition to having one of the best eyes in the business Ridley Scott's also got the best ears I mean he knows what his movie needed and uh, man it's great oh there, there's one more thing I just wanted to mention uh, before I forget is um, Alien and Blade Runner are so similar in <laughs> in the way in in the dystopia uh, pictured. Um, and, and not only that, but some of the graphics are used in the same in, in the, in both films, even though they're two different film companies. I don't know how the hell he did that, but, <laughs> right. um, yeah, but, um, but I always figured that, that, that it's the same universe, like maybe aliens a little bit later. Um, but, uh, man, yeah, uh, that really Scott just blew my mind in that, in that period, like 79 to 82. It's just, uh, he was hitting all home runs. <laughs> and he's hinted all kinds of things about that. And I think when you see the movies, when he comes back, he does Prometheus and Alien Covenant, which I I have various opinions on. But um, uh, but he, I think he, to be fair to him, I think he definitely kind of follows a certain through line there that is still dealing. You know, it's interesting. He comes back and he makes these two films that are just supposed to be Alien Chase Man. And they're still about that question of what defines a human being and what does it mean when we play God and what does that look not, but never from the perspective of the person playing God, but always from the perspective of the creation, right? It's a creation, not the creator, Uh, even to the point that the creations, the human beings are looking for their creator in Prometheus. Uh, So I don't want to go too much down that road, but I, uh, have you seen alien covenant? Yes. And, uh, and I, and again, to be fair, I honestly thought, you know, I didn't quite really, Love that film. I thought it had a lot of issues, but I love the way it begins because it begins with the birth of an android. And it felt like such mm-hmm. a scene that would fit so with the birth, of, I think, right? Like we essentially yeah. see Michael uh, gaining, or David, excuse me, played by Michael Fassbender. We see David gaining his awareness. And for a movie that's always been of these slimy monsters of space, for him to open with that, I felt like that is him tying those worlds together in a sense. Mm. Yeah, I never thought about that. I, I need to go back because I it might make me like Alien Covenant a little bit better. I mean, I think the problem is that movie started on such a high note that I was like, yes, and then eventually <laughs> aliens were chasing people around again. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, but um, so different movies. But I agree, like, and I think it's the fastidious levels of detail. Two things are happening in Blade Runner and Alien. These people have these amazing, like these, these amazing otherworldly jobs, literally in, in the case <laughs> of the Alien guys, and yet. They they seem like the most mundane sad sacks doing it, right. you know. Like it's it, they live in a world where this is not a prestigious line of work, even though it's right. fascinating to us. Yeah, yeah, I know that, and that is that is really fascinating, and that is definitely, I would say, our our future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. These guys are just cogs in the machine, and I think I you know I, when I often watch Blade Runner, I pair it with Terry Gilliam's Brazil, but that's, that's a totally different <laughs> conversation. Um, yes. But I think they complement each other in some ways. But masterpiece to me, it's a ten out of ten. I'm, I'm sure you're the same. And I, yeah. I think that people who think that maybe it's an empty special effects picture, this is a movie about people. It is, even though it has a lot of special effects, and these people are not happy types, you know. <laughs> and they are 
they are characters that aren't connected to their humanity. And that is exactly the point. And I think there are some very poignant moments. Even, you know, I always really like the scenes. I could watch a lot more. I think of the scenes where we see Pris and Roy with Sebastian, uh, who, who is himself a very sad figure and who's had a lot of challenges and has surrounded himself with artificiality, with these little toys that are like his little friends. You know, he said he's made his own friends. That stuff is, to me, very fascinating, and I could have yeah. seen more of that. Uh, it's fun to watch Deckard, and, and like you said, he kind of just skulks the, the 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 mystery. It's not so much he's solving anything really, you know. <laughs> he's just it, it's kind of like how Indiana Jones, you know, is like a, in the early movies he's pretty proactive, and by like the fourth one, he's just takes him twice as long to do what a crazy old man did by wandering through a jungle. But you know. Yeah, he just escapes to lose a life, basically. Yeah, yes, yeah. So uh, all of those things make it a better movie, not a worse movie. So, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, um, there. I, I I saw it recently. I saw it, you know, preparing for the show, and um, man, I loved every scene. Again, I can't, yeah. I, I can't believe that it's still so interesting to watch. Um, I well, you know, the, <laughs> I guess it speaks for itself. Um, but yeah, I did, I did a little research and found out um, Ridley Scott was heavily influenced by, uh, you know, Metal Hurlant, which uh, became heavy metal in the United States magazine, um, and especially uh, Mobius. Um, the artist Mobius said it inspired him a lot. Uh, Sid Mead, obviously, who I think actually worked on the movie, designing the spinners and stuff. Um, but yes. if you look through art books of his, yeah, his whole futurism is in that style and it's very much alive today like if you look at a prius <laughs> yeah no kidding like belongs in blade runner yeah <laughs> um well yeah scott also said uh, the city of hong kong as it was in 1982 um inspired him because it's it was a cosmopolitan uh thing back then but you know before the it went back to the chinese um and uh the movie metropolis by fritz lang and finally, a book that I have, which is pretty cool, um, called Mechanismo, which is basically just a bunch of different artists uh, uh, sort of compiled together with sort of near future visions. And a, a lot of the stuff I can see, uh, yeah, 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 that, that made it to Blade Runner and, and, you know, maybe that too. And it wouldn't surprise me if he also consulted that book for Alien, um, but I, I'm not sure on the dates. So, yeah. Yeah, I've seen that book and it's very cool. And I, yeah, I agree. And I think what's interesting too is, you know, so much of what you see in Blade Runner, uh, we see sometimes in other sci-fi movies and, you know, but it's that dark side, right? It's the, you know, it's the popular mechanics once you've drenched it in rain and rust and dirt mm. and grime. And, uh, you know, the other thing that really got credited and I think it makes perfect sense because I love, as a kid, I remember seeing the, the painting um, Nighthawks by Edward Hopper, who has mm. always been one of my, favorite uh artist and i'm sure you're, you're familiar with it right um yeah oh yeah uh, victor you know and, and that image too i feel like when i look at night hawks that's you know if, you know if you were to make a movie based off of that you get blade runner or you get dark city which is also a favorite yes. favorite uh yes. sci-fi movie and maybe dark city is what it has more in that but scott credits uh night hawks as well and this painting and essentially for anyone who maybe isn't instantly familiar with it you have you're you're viewing the inhabitants of a like looks like a late night diner but you're viewing them from the street looking in and the the view allows you to see the the, the street sort of in front of the diner and then the window and then everything is dark and shadowy outside and then you have this one kind of 
beacon of light in the middle that is these inhabitants in the diner. But true about most Hopper paintings is these people all look alone and isolated, even though there's four mm -hmm. or five people in this diner, right? None of them ever look together. When he, his picture, his, his paintings were always like this. They were always sort of, uh, definitely had a voyeur sort of feel to them where you always felt like you were looking in a window or uh, it, into a corner of shadows. And a lot of times, like you might see a wife and a husband, but there would be some, something visual element separating the two of them as boundaries. And so it makes perfect sense. I think that this, this image would appeal to someone making a science fiction story or a story that questions reality or what is our future going to do to us in, in terms of our isolation. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, I never really thought of it that way. Um, yeah, that's true. And I didn't either until I, I like realized that the, the Scott actually came out and like name checked Nighthawks. And I think I think maybe Roger Ebert or somebody name checked it when they were reviewing Dark City. I was like, that explains a lot. And uh, but I think it's fantastic. And I because I came to it in the '90s, and then like probably right around the time that they announced that hey, there's a novel sequel to Blade Runner. <laughs> And oh, I, right. yeah, yeah. Let's see if you have anything else to say. We're going from masterpiece to not masterpiece. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, no, that's, that's, I think we covered everything about Blade Runner, but, um, but yeah, Blade Runner 2, um, hmm. yeah, uh, written by Kevin Jeter and, um, it's called, it's subtitled The Edge of Human. And I, yeah, I would, I guess I would recommend it for, I don't know if we need to spend time going into the plot. Stuff, I don't but, think um, so, except in one area where I want to talk about it. Big, but I mean, um, no, I don't think so. But but yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would recommend it to really hardcore Blade Runner fans and probably no one else. Like, I I think it's pretty mediocre, but um, I don't think that's necessarily Jeter's fault. Uh, I mean, I think that I mean it's it's fine. It's a finely written book. It, yeah. It's just that I, what. You know, I, it always fascinated me because I've seen, you know, being a writer myself, like I've seen calls for like, you know, write stories based in the alien universe for this upcoming anthology. And, um, eh, you know, I'd never done it because uh, I, I know that, well, I mean, first of all, at the end of the day, there's no chance of selling it to anybody because it's already based on somebody else's IP. Um, and I, this book really caused me to think about writing in somebody else's universe and the limitations of that, but it looks like what Jeter was asked to do or what he did on his own was just take snapshots of the movie Blade Runner and build them out as if, well, what if the camera stayed on the blimp for a little while? Or like, what if, um, you know, we sort of concentrated on outside the city for a while? Um, you know, and it's like, yeah, I mean, but those things are discussed in the there's nothing in this book that that wasn't covered in the movie um and to make it even more confusing there's some stuff from do androids dream of electric sheep that's that's in the blade runner 2 book too um that, that are at odds with the stuff in blade runner so to be fair that's the, the the subtitle of this book could be do androids dream of electric shit i'm just saying <laughs> yeah uh, yeah. It, so yeah, not a great, not a great experience, but, um, uh, but it is long. <laughs> <laughs> a long and not great experience. Victor Rodriguez was put that up on the, the front cover, right? Um, I it's, think it's, it just reminds me of Animaniacs where, uh, <laughs> Slappy the squirrel goes obnoxious yet rude. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. 
<laughs> not a great experience, but very long. And uh, <laughs> it's great. And I think that the you know it, it's all time favorite movie in probably around nineteen ninety five. And I did not read this book until like two weeks ago. <laughs> Where when when I and hopefully you bought it for four dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I did just about. Yeah, I, I ordered it used uh, on Amazon Marketplace. Uh, and uh, yeah, well, now we know. Yeah, and I was like, oh, it was perfect here. You can win a copy of the book we just uh, slagged, but even better because I found an unopened copy, an open, unopened Blu-ray of Blade Runner 2049 that I'll be giving away instead. And we'll talk about that mm, at the end of the show, nicer. which I think is much nicer. Maybe I'll tape the, the book to the back of it. But um, just a couple of things I want to say because I'm in almost complete agreement with you is feels like the kind of scripts that were running around in the late 90s for sequels mm. to various various movies and various IPs. Uh, you know, how I, the problem with some of the alien sequel scripts is that some of them are better than maybe what was ended up being made <laughs> into movies in some of those cases. But these scripts all seem to be based around this basic idea of uh, hewing so closely that it was in the last movie, but only in the sense of details. You know, I feel that in the nineties we got into this it, it, for one thing, and we've talked about this on the X-Files podcast. This is when like, pop culture love and cult status of movies and, 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 and geek love in general, it, it's changing, right? Like suddenly things are becoming popular beyond the very small window of people that adored them. But mm. you're also, so you're getting a lot of people writing things that they may or may not understand, but you're also getting the people that do understand these things or think they do that have held them close to their hearts for so very long that are now ready to, Oh, I want to, do a follow-up to this. But in cases where we saw like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg get inspired by old pulp serials and make Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? They make something new that has right. the thematic understanding. Uh, what we see here are people taking almost just lifting the entire thing they love and just tinkering here or there with little nitpicks or little, little, uh, nuances that for the most part, I don't think anybody really cares about and missing the, the ethos of what was happening in that original work or missing the, the, the point of the original work. And I think this is a perfect example to me of that because um, I, I'm not going to, like you said, I'm not getting into the plot too much, but this entire book basically uh, revolves around that one line that is, that is basically sort of a, a leftover bit of script that gets, you know, read that references a sixth, Repl six replicants and uh you know i think bryant mentions that you know one got fry going through the 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 electrical field and there's four mm -hmm. others out there and then there's a there's a the mystery of a sixth replicant and i think in some ways that sixth replicant thing does that become oh is that deckard or not uh and so it's funny because it's the whole novel seems to come from this mystery which isn't that much of a mystery and i don't think anyone really cares about it also becomes a red herring because it ultimately doesn't matter because there isn't a sixth replicant. Spoilers. Right. <laughs> and I think so much of what happens in here is just sort of like it's just spinning its wheels in this world. It's like you said, it so it's a it's a bizarre work in the sense that it's not that bizarre. It, it re, it's very mediocre and, and, and run of the mill. But it, the bizarre nature of it is that it is so fastidious in some ways to Blade Runner that it never feels like its own thing. And yet so a million miles away from what made that movie special that you just don't care. And <laughs> you get kind of mad about it. After yeah, a while. yeah I, no, I agree. I agree. I, I, I think that there are rules for making sequels and um, technically this book follows those rules, but I think just the wrong choices were made. Um, 
just you know to, yeah. to varying degrees that's that's all like uh, like i mean aliens is a great sequel to alien um because it's done in a totally different way with a lot of the stuff you want to see and more of it um and i think that that basic truth exists in this book but it's like all the ways the sequels envisioned are like oh man it was cooler before i read this you know Yes, because I think the few ideas that it has are ideas that I didn't like. Yeah. <laughs> like because because I think they're so rooted in that, you know, they also are very rooted in that in in the in the Ridley Scott's question of is Deckard a replicant, you know, which yeah. uh to me that's that in itself is a red herring from what the film is about. And so his book is all about that. It is, 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 is like, uh, right. and there's discussions about, it. and they, they get to almost to an interesting, a potentially interesting idea, which was maybe all replicants are also, are all blade runners are also replicants, you know? And so they'd be easy to control, but that seems to be equally stupid <laughs> or it's equally <laughs> a bad idea for other reasons. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I think that, no, but none of those ideas are fleshed out in an interesting way. They might be in a, in a in a, and I think it's super strange that it we only have a couple of, of diversions, but it is gets really weird when we have some characters that are essentially similar to ones that existed in Blade Runner the movie, but are actually from the novel. You know, it, it yeah. feels more like confusion than it does a, like a, a a a specific concentrated idea. Like a per, it seems less like a purposeful choice and more like, oh, you know, I had all these scripts run around, and I got confused on whether I was pulling from this. We're pulling from yeah. that. It's just not a very good story. I think maybe what it's best for, and, there, and apparently there were two other books that followed it, but uh, which I have not yeah, read. Two other, they're all by Jeter. Yeah. And apparently um, he was a big uh, person in the cyberpunk lit community that uh, Philip K. Dick knew or mentioned or something. They, they, they had some correspondence with each other. Yeah, that's um, true. And that's probably why he was picked to do this, but uh, supposedly he has some good books out there. I haven't read them yet, so I'll report back when I do. Um, but, uh, cause I do like the genre, uh, but, uh, um, I do do. And I, and, and so you pointed out, I don't think the book is horribly written. I think that I also have read that, that, uh, Jeter is credited with ter- coining the term steampunk, which I think is yeah. a far more, um, uh, it's a far better thing to be remembered for than this, uh, than this book. <laughs> Yes, yes, uh, that is very popular, uh, steampunk, or, or was. Um, but yeah, maybe still. Uh, In certain circles, yeah. perhaps, yeah. I think it's become almost too mainstream now, right? Like, everything's just steampunk. Yeah, I think I think it's just a mild steampunk influence on various things now. But yeah. uh, there was a while where it was really big, and there was a lot of cosplay and... You know, I remember seeing steampunks on the street in Hollywood going, what's that? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. No kidding. And, and right there, there were some years back um, in, in in Baltimore, they had the, um, you know, Otakon, which is the anime festival, but a lot of people were like dressed in steampunk. And the particular year, I remember uh, some friends were like, hey, come with us. And so I did. And that particular year, the, a gas line or something blew up under the streets of Baltimore. And so there was steam coming out of all of these like manhole covers and these people dressed in this all the steampunk and anime regalia it looked like the city of blade runner like i was in baltimore and it looked like blade runner like looking out <laughs> through the haze and seeing all these crazy costumes and there's steam and fire and stuff everywhere it was pretty yes. cool <laughs> but, but again it's a cool thing to see it's not a cool thing to live 
Right. But um, yeah, so I think I think the best the best use of this is when we begin, and I guess we will be beginning here now, is to talk about uh, the approach to a sequel uh, and how different what Jeter does here is, uh, or and maybe it's somebody similar with what gets done with Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which is mm -hmm. uh, yeah, this is a movie I honestly never thought, particularly after after knowing this book was out there and I had never read it, but it, like it did fail to make any kind of splash whatsoever, and then even after we were getting redos of everything you could possibly think of. I just never thought we would get a Blade Runner 2, you know? I, I thought what I honestly thought was going to happen is that they would remake it, you know? And even after we get Prometheus, I'm still thinking, like, a Blade, is Ridley Scott going to go back and do a Blade Runner uh, sequel? And I was super excited when Denny Villeneuve did get picked to do this, but I still had a lot of questions because, you know, and I think that the year this comes out is, is 2017, so we have seen already Star Wars has come back, and a lot of people were happy with Star Wars, the, you know, um, what was it, The Force Awakens. And I didn't particularly think it was a bad movie, but a lot of these return to our original IP, and Prometheus included, they just didn't quite have the same magic, you know. And I'm thinking, I'd right. rather you leave Blade Runner alone, personally speaking. I thought the same thing. And if you can imagine the amount of pressure that Jeter was under writing the book, um, Blade Runner 2, Denny Villeneuve with his multi-million dollar budget at risk. Um, no, I don't think anybody was expecting Blade Runner 2049 to be any good um, or at least not be able to measure, measure up to the original. Um, and what did you think of it? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we, we, we get into the plots here, but I think, I think the way we've been doing this, we end up getting the plots just by discussing the film, which I think in this case, uh, it's probably the best way to do it. You know, it almost doesn't matter to give you a basic rundown, except to say that the care that we we do get a follow up to that story. And uh, yeah, let's talk about our initial reactions, and then I think we can get into it. But honestly, and I went to see this uh, the big theater. It, it, it's been there since the '30s, the Senator Theater down in Baltimore. Um, it's, I've mentioned many times on the show. It's an awesome theater. It's where they filmed chunks of Twelve Monkeys when they they're in the theater watching Vertigo. Oh, I remember uh, that. Yeah, that's the same theater. It's a beautiful, it's a wonderful theater. It's a big old school movie house. And I'm like, okay, if I'm going to see the movie, good or bad, I got to see it here. And, you know, there's a awesome. Canadian burger, burger joint next door, and they were serving something called the Deckard. So I was like, okay, I'm going to eat that <laughs> and then go see this. And I saw it with my buddy who who has been seeing sci-fi movies with me for like the past 20 years, and we're both big Blade Runner fans in college. And so um, it starts, and the very first thing that I'm blown away with is what you mentioned about how you feel when you see that movie for the first time. There's two things here is, wow, this world looks so much like the world that existed in the 82 film. Uh, and, and, and what I mean is not just, oh, there's the same components. They somehow achieve a similar look using advanced special effects, but they're so smart, I think, with how they use those visual effects that this just looks like an extrapolation of that original world. It doesn't look completely yeah. different. It's not like you see Star Wars. Look at those trash ships they had, and now look at these sleek things that they have. You know, it looks for all the world like that same universe, and it has that same ambience and that same heft and reality, that texture, right? That's the hard thing to achieve, I think, when you do movies that where so much of them are inside of computers. And I'm thinking this feels seamlessly. I could believe this movie was made a few years later, right? You know? 
from yeah. from Blade Runner. And so and yet that same sense of mystery, I think, exists, that same sense of awe and of of a world that's a little mysterious, even though we've had how at this point, how many movies about a cyberpunk future have we had? since the original Blade Runner. And yet somehow I'm almost caught up in that immediately. And I, one of the things that's really cool is it, you know, we're thrown right back into a scenario with a Blade Runner and uh, one of his quarry. Right. And we mm-hmm. see uh Sapper Morton, which is a really cool name. I think it's kind of cool and maybe yeah. a little silly, but it's a pretty neat name. And th- he's played. This is the part that I love is that he's played by Dave Bautista, who in this small moment here, I think gives a really kind of understated, again, a mostly physical, like the, the, the Blade Runner original film, mostly physical performance, but a kind of poignant performance. Great performance. Probably it, also the main guy, um, uh, uh, Ryan Gosling. Yeah, Ryan Gosling. Right, right. Uh, th- this is probably my favorite performance of both of those guys, this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, I would agree. And, and, and you're right. And so Gosling is the Blade Runner that we're following here. And I think what's so like fascinating about this, and he's K, and it's funny because right this this scene opens up and it gives us a window into this world that also extends beyond. We finally see a little bit that's not just the city, you know. Still looks, uh, still has that sense that this world is the one that's, that's kind of downtrodden and uh, broken, and this conflict. And we see that there's still a conflict between Blade Runners and 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 their their prey and it and i feel like the minute we see that sequence it connects back to that urgency and that desire to survive and the coldness of 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 the blade runner hunter and what i think is so neat is shortly after that we get callbacks to the original blade runner and this revelation that a replicant had a child that physically right. potentially gave birth to a child. If it was a replicant, you know, we have these questions. And then we also, re- we, we find out very quickly that that, that the K, the, the the hunter is a replicant. I mean, there is no question about this. This isn't meant to be a mystery. This isn't even to say that it, it, it doesn't answer the question of was Decker a replicant. He's just a replicant. It's a, it's a fact that's known up front. And how we see that world responding to him, how he has to be sort of uh, constantly under surveillance to, to, you know, to make sure he's still r- running up to, to, to code and everything like that, and these tests that yeah. he has to go through. I think all of that is, creates a very fascinating world. And I love, actually, I love seeing um, Robin Wright in here too as his, you know, his superior. Everything in this film a very un- unsympathetic human. Um, I loved her yeah. performance as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. This is another film where we don't have a lot of really uh, warm performances. And we get the other deal where the warmest performance, I think, in the movie, uh, and we do eventually do have Harrison Ford come back, is Anna Diarmas as as Joy, as J-O-I, as the... My favorite character. Yeah, by far. And... She's she's really just the holographic companion, his AI girlfriend, essentially that that uh, the K, uh, you know, has, has there at his apartment, and they the, he, but he's the person, arguably person that he that he's closest to, and again, he technically is not a person, but their relationship 
is very fascinating. And it, it and it reminds me a lot, uh, and it feels like it has sprung from the movie Her, the Spike Jones movie Her, which I also thought oh, yeah. was really good. Uh, because at some point we get to a point where they kind of bring in a surrogate, you know, for their relationship where... That was cool too. Yeah, yeah and, and the... the that sequence is, I think, the most mind-bendy that the Blade Runner universe has gotten to replicating what Philip K. Dick is doing, you know. Uh, yes. in, in, like, the Blade Runner film, as fantastic as it was, tried to stay kind of in the lines most of the time. And this one goes out of the lines, and it brings in a lot of those elements, one of those being the idea of Joy, who's who's even less of a person than Kay is, right, supposedly. But mm-hmm. she is also the one that we feel the closest... Um, you know, connection to. And then we realize that she could be, you know, because she's a hologram, uh, you know, she she could be uh, appropriate in lots of different ways. And there's it, it, kind of a very weird scene where she's a she's a giant kind of walking through the city there. It's like not not oh, right. Not yeah, entirely unappetizing. It's kind of, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Anadarmas is incredibly beautiful and blown up to uh, 50 feet. Still beautiful. Uh, but the the interesting ideas that get in there, you know, and, and, and what his relationship with her is and what happens in the film uh, to both of them, I think is really fascinating. And then there's this mystery because what, what happens is they didn't think that replicants could reproduce biologically thought that's impossible. And so they're worried that this is going to lead to some sort of out and out conflict. You know, we talk about how, um, Scott was influenced by Metropolis. You know, Metropolis does have that war between the haves and the have-nots. And then uh, there was an entire uh, manga uh, called Metropolis that was mm-hmm. done. Um, and then they made a film. Rintaro did a movie that was based off of Otama Tezuka's uh, manga that deals very specifically where those those lower class workers and those elevated above them, it was a battle between androids and human beings. And mm-hmm. I think you're starting to get the 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 seeds of that sort of story in this one and so everyone's very interested in what's going on here you go to trip back to the Terrell corporation you have a very cool little uh cameo by Edward James almost that I thought was pretty neat and everyone's sort of looking for uh Deckard in a sense not in the same way they're looking for Luke Skywalker but you know there's this question of where did he go and because he's you know the the DNA archives identify that dead woman or that dead replicant as Rachel. And so now we've come, we've sort of come full circle as we think we have, but I think it's really interesting. And again, I, I think we can do full spoilers here because it's, it's so important. I think to what the film is going for is that they start to look for who this child is. Right. And this child is potentially, is it, we're we talking about a human child, a replicant child, who is this child? And Kay starts to follow these clues, and he's looking all over the place to find out who they are. And he gets to a certain point when he starts to think that maybe, you know, potentially, maybe he is Rachel's child. Yeah. Yeah, the the years match up. Yes, everything matches up perfectly. And, you know, there's a point when he is going to go and find in the ruins of Las Vegas, that's where he ultimately finds Deckard. Uh, and he realized that Deckard is the father of the child. And, uh, and those scenes are really good, by the way, I, I, the interiors of that hotel, you talk about the, 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 the old, uh, that maybe footage from the shining was used in the first film. Some of the designs inside of that hotel seem to be, you know, a tip of the hat to the shining. 
and uh, and, and to Kubrick in general. There there was a Kubrickian sort of feel to some of what occurs there. And I really, I thought Ford as Deckard here, I was far more impressed with him here than him coming back as Han Solo. Like, I thought he did a fantastic job. And, you know, for one thing, it makes sense to be tired and old and sick of this world (laughs) in the Blade Runner universe. (laughs) Yes, I, I agree. I, I agree with the performances. Um, I just felt that uh, Blade Runner 2049 has a lot of good points um, that you that you just mentioned. And I did like it more the second time I saw it. But um, I do feel like it's a little too long. Um, and the first thing that came to my mind is like, what if they just edited out Harrison Ford's complete story? Um, would that be a movie and i think it would be i I think that the reason they have two protagonists um is to mainly satisfy the people who were wondering if 2049 was going to be a legitimate sequel or not and then it's like when ford was in it, it's like oh well maybe it's good then you know I, i felt it was more of a marketing move um than even though it is interesting what they do with his character but I mean, if Rachel's the first replicant that was able to get pregnant, then why is he able to impregnate him as a earlier replicant? That's the part that kind of hmm. as an earlier replicant. What do you mean? Like, well, I mean, if he, if he was if he was running around, I mean, if Deckard is a replicant, as they suppose that he is, if he's living in irradiated Las Vegas. Um, oh yeah, and it's weird because I kind of got the feeling I thought. I thought that Deckard was a human being. I thought we were back to Deckard's a person. Like, oh, yeah. Um, maybe in maybe the context he of this I, story. Maybe he is. That might be better. Um, yeah. Because then then the kid makes sense. Um, yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah. No, that's it. That's it. Okay. So, I, I, you know, you make a very good point. I think that if you're, from a certain perspective, I think it's right. However, what happens with this story where he thinks that he for a while is the child and it turns out that that's not by accident, right? That there's this replicate freedom movement where this is a process that they're sort of put through, you know, that this is a, this is a phenomena that sort of happens with, with, with these, you know, it's a way that we can, in a sense, almost deprogram a replicant Blade Runner, right? that you yes. send them on this journey of actual actualization that puts them in the footsteps of this child that they walk through this experience and it gives all of the replicants a common mythology a common road to walk and what does that sound like it sounds like mercerism it's like right. way to take the mercerism bring it in the story apply it not to the human beings but to the replicants, bringing the idea of the replicants as being more human and more empathetic than the people full circle. And I think that's fascinating. But I think what it does require is now we have to see Kay take that information and do something sort of selfless with it. And I think it needs to have that, okay, he's not the child, but he's going to help the father of the child solve this issue and get back. And that father, that child could be anybody. But I'm going to, as a Blade Runner fan, I'm glad it's Deckard. Like, that's how I, I come to it. So, uh, and, and and I love there's a line towards the end where he's come full circle. And he is in a similar place to where Roy Batty is, you know, where his life has come to the end. Um, but the way in which he embraces it is different. And 
Deckard says to him, well, who are you or who am I to you? You know, something like that. And at this point, he's found out, you know, he's he's realized that, you know, well, I'm not the child and that this has all been sort of a ruse in a certain sense, but I can still help him get to her, you know, his, his actual daughter. And I thought that was very powerful and I thought it worked very well. Um, you're probably not, no, no, I don't say probably not. You're not wrong about it being long. I think because I'm such a fan of this world that the one thing I thought this movie was opening up and letting that world breathe a little bit. What I would have cut, if I'm honest with you, is I probably would have cut uh, the people. I would have cut Jared Leto. Uh, to be honest, oh, yeah. I think yeah, yeah. Leto's sequences, and, then he gets, and, and a scene where we bring out a Rachel replicant, that stuff is so close to James Bondy villain stuff. Right. And I just don't need that. Like, that's the stuff I would have jettisoned, not not Ford. And I will say there's an action sequence towards the end involving those submerged, the submerged um, spinners that was very cool and very intense. Um, yes, I did love that. Um, yeah. yeah the, all the scenes with Jared Leto are almost like, you know, you're, something you're not supposed to do is shoot shoot the set, like instead of the action that's going on on the set in, in these big budget movies. There are exceptions. There are people that have done it well. Actually, I think Blade Runner, like that scene where uh, Deckard is out on the balcony of his apartment in the middle of the movie, just enjoying a scotch, like taking a breather and all the actions going down below is that's something you're not supposed to do. But it is beautiful in that movie because it gives you a chance to catch your breath and go, wow. Yeah, <laughs> he's high up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think those movies do because the sets are so big and so grand that it's like, well, what are you going to shoot if not the set? Right. But I mean, it's, it seems like the, the stuff with uh, Leto's character was just like room after room of like uniquely, beautifully designed, minimalist, uh, you know, empty rooms uh, that I guess that's his life. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if we really needed to see it more than once, uh, you know, uh, but anyway. An unpopular opinion, I think the problem is the closer you get to that guy, and I'm not saying Leto necessarily is an actor, I've seen him do very good work, but his character, what he's doing here, the more you the more you hone in on that, the bigger the bigger problem I think you have. So in a way, I feel like he's almost better just couched in in comic book villain terms, like he's like he's uh who is um you know Gary Oldman's character from the fifth element. <laughs> like that guy in his giant office like he's almost like that he's almost like totally. zorg <laughs> yeah totally he's totally zorg um yeah yeah uh i yeah i just felt that um tyrell was in the first movie was so much more interesting because yes. it had this kind of baroque taste and the weird glasses and let's go back to him because we should mention literally the day we were recording this the, the joe turkle who played tyrell in that film and I meant to mention him earlier, uh, he passed away, uh, mm -hmm. just, just passed away. And his, we were talking about this. Um, and this is one of the, this is one of the things that happens with this podcast is you and I, or, or any of my guests, we start talking about stuff before I'm actually the, the show proper has started. And I can't remember where we talked about it, but I mentioned how I thought his performance in that film was actually very strange in a good way. Like when we finally meet this guy who's created them, he's everything you would think on one end. He's very, you know, haughty in a sense. And he is, he's very proud and arrogant, but there's also a weird sort of eccentricity, almost a, like a Howard Hughesness to him, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll bet you that was a style guide that one, either Scott or 
Turkle um, used. Uh, that makes sense. I never thought of that. Like he doesn't seem to realize what a bastard he is. <laughs> and he would he wouldn't because that I mean that's what people at that level of right. corporate success are like. Like they're surrounded by people that say yes to them, and um, you know uh, they don't know when when they're being unempathetic uh, because everybody always compliments them. <laughs> right. And he makes much more sense as a Philip K. Dick sort of figurehead. Uh, whereas I get the idea that, you know, we talk, we were talking a little bit about the anime here. Like the Leto character fits better into that than he does into something like this. He's just a villain. He's just a graphic novel, comic book villain kind of character. And that's probably not be giving credit to. <laughs> I mean, he's not awful. I don't think he's awful, but he just seems like he was ported in, um, or maybe it was a leftover piece that wasn't necessary. I just don't think he's particularly necessary. Yeah, I guess they they use the Leto character to uh, do the exposition about the blackout, which is also featured in Black Lotus, but. Um, other than that, and I actually, I don't even think the black the blackout's a really interesting idea, but uh, I don't think it's really necessary to tell the the Blade Runner twenty forty nine story. No, um, I, I I agree. So, yeah, yeah, but, I think you're right. I think that should have all been edited out. Um, but I will say this: I mean, my, personally, I love the movie. I think it was probably my if it wasn't my favorite movie, it was close to my favorite movie that year. Again, part of, I have to admit, I'm a huge Blade Runner fan. I think the movie was wonderful. I think in some ways it makes the first movie better. Um, I'm not maybe a, I'm like a 9.5, maybe a 10. I mean, I loved it, but, and I'm not saying it's without problems. I just never expected to go back to that world in, 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 see new ideas introduced into it. And I think what really pleased me so much was seeing Dick's original ideas from do Android's dream of electric sheep, the kind of stuff I never thought they could fit into this Blade Runner world merged in some really interesting ways that gave characters an arc that they didn't have arcs before. So yeah, I, I never really thought of the the uh, mercerism angle sort of uh, reconstituted in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. That's brilliant, um, and yeah, I, I think that somebody on the team did that purposefully. I just missed it, uh, but yeah, it, it's. I mean, uh, he had every chance. Villeneuve had every chance to screw this movie up, and he didn't. Um, it's not bad. Uh, I, I don't like it quite as much as you do. I come in more, more like a 7.5, but, uh, I really liked a lot of the stuff in it. And, um, I, I liked it more the second time I saw it. Maybe I'll like it even more the third time I see it. Um, you know, one other complaint I have about it is the music I feel is a cheap imitation of the first soundtrack. I know it's Hans Zimmer and he sometimes does great work, but man, I felt like he really blew this one. Um, I, I, it's, it's loud, uh, and it sort of sounds like the first score, but it's like night and day. Like the first score is absolutely brilliant in every way. This was completely annoying in every way to me, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, of course I'm hypersensitive to music cause that's my job. So yeah. And you might, the, I, I will say this and I, yeah, I, I didn't have a problem with it, but I, I don't even know that I was disappointed with it. I think the issue is, is that it feels, and I feel this a lot with a lot of scores, but I think it happens very often when you, when they're with these go back to the well movies, right? Like, um, I'll be perfectly honest. I feel it. I mean, I feel it when I watch the Halloween movies too, the newer ones, like even though John Carpenter is making that music, I don't care. It's not, 
it right. it is not singular or that interesting to me. And I would honestly, I don't know if his style, but I'd rather they've gotten someone like Philip Glass or somebody to do music for this film or, you know, like it needed something distinctive. I, if it didn't yes. even sound like Vangelis, I'd have been perfectly happy with that. If it was something different or like Clint Manziel, you know, like, uh, like, like yeah. something from the fountain, like not, not the fountains music, but you know, those musical works that he did for the Aronofsky films, like it needed an identity that was a little bit its own and maybe sound like Blade Runner, but I agree with you. This was like, let's stay on the reservation. That's you know, this is where, where the, the film didn't stay on the reservation. And it, if the, if it had done what the score had done, it would have been that interesting. I absolutely agree. I think Manziel would have been a great choice. Trent Reznor might've been a great choice. Uh, yeah. There, there, there are a good call too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Needed, it, the first film was so score was so ambient. And like you said, you know, to me, it's what got me into ambient music. It needed a score like that. What that, that would have, and in places it maybe, it maybe did that, but I think it did that just by standing on the back of the Vangela stuff. Yes. Um, yeah. It was an emulated, uh, experience, but but yeah, um, but again, uh, to bring it back around, I, I really think um, Villeneuve, man, he has got guts. I, I mean, first this, then Dune. I mean, <laughs> he is shooting the moon every time, and they're not bad. Like I, I, I like Dune a little bit more than Blade Runner twenty forty nine, um, but he is confident. I mean, yeah, his man. confidence astounds me, and he pulled it off. Uh, he pulled off the impossible twice, um, more times if you think of some of his other movies. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, he's he's great. I can't wait to see what he does next. Yeah, and I, I think it's I think it's uh, I think we're both in agreement. It's a good movie. I think it's a it's a great movie. But um, and it is worthy of Blade Runner. And I'm happy that it exists. Um, you know, maybe the only other sequel of recent years that I think uh, is even a, like in the same ballpark is like, a, like Mad Max Fury Road, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, That's, yeah. And, 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 uh, and now in that one, I think they got the score. I enjoyed the score more <laughs> in, in yes. Fury Road. I think they got, they, they nailed more elements of it. And I might, I might say that that's a, then that might, I think that is a, a little bit better movie than this one, but they're both, yeah. uh, in my opinion, um, uh, astounding that we got anything of this quality coming, you know, so long after and for something that, uh, you know, for me, the road warrior was a seminal movie too. And then to have it have anything in the ballpark is amazing. So I, I agree. You know, part of the problem is my own cynicism too. Like, I think that when it comes to these sequels that happen way after the, you know, the, the last movie happened, um, I am already like writing it off. Like I'm already like, Oh God, it's a money grab or, you know, or it's, it's the director trying to revisit his youth and make yeah. another movie, um, in the same universe. But no, yeah, I agree with you totally. In both cases, this is a success. Fury road, definitely a success. Uh, both films completely worth seeing whether you're a Blade Runner fan or a Mad Max fan or not. Um, so they succeed in every way. Um, many sequels don't, but these two do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I and I and it's a, it's an impressive, and I I agree with you. I think Gosling's really good in the film, and it's it's a it's just a good movie overall. But and the Anna de Armas, I think it's one that she first sort of really came onto my radar, and she's done really nothing but great work since. Uh, yeah, not every she's movie she's in is amazing, but I think she's right. always really strong, and I really liked her in uh, Knives Out. 
Uh, oh yeah, yeah, she's, she's great in Knives Out. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's a movie star. She definitely has a long career yeah, ahead of her. A hundred percent. Like when I saw her pop up in in the last uh, James Bond, I'm like, okay, I'm ready for her to take the franchise over. I'm cool with that. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I get you know I gotta say we're doing pretty good. We've gone through this a lot quicker than. <laughs> good solid stuff but you know it's two hours and we have i think what one more left um which is blade oh, yeah. blade runner black lotus do you want to talk about that uh victor yeah um yeah blade runner black lotus apparently done with the blessings of ridley scott um it's an animated series yeah i think you've mentioned it's on hbo max and uh it's the, all the episodes are directed by shinji aramaki and kenji kamiyama uh, and um, it's chronologically set in between Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. Uh, it's set in the year 2032, and that is 10 years after the blackout. The blackout, in case anybody hasn't seen uh, BR 2049, um, it's some kind of worldwide uh, data delete, um, you know, EMP type situation where all the machines were erased on earth. Um, so all the bank debt disappeared, uh, business came to a halt and, um, that's what's significant about it. And humanity eventually rebuilt and recovered from that. But, um, but they mention it in black Lotus as well. There's, I, I really, I thought that, um, we were talking about this before the show too. And I agree that it, Blade Runner Black Lotus starts out rather slow. Like the first few episodes are the first episodes, interesting, engaging. Then it kind of slows down. And um, it, I was kind of struggling to keep watching them uh, until the last four or five episodes. And then it really got exciting for me. Um, but I do, I do think it's worth watching. Um, definitely watch it. If you're a Blade Runner fan, uh, because uh, it, it is, it's visually cool. Well, I mean, they're, they're, the visuals, I'm, I'm split. Like the backgrounds I thought were really cool looking um, and the way they draw tech I thought was really neat. Um, but uh, the characters seem a little last gen, um, which is <laughs> really odd because it's about next gen characters. But um, it, it's, uh, it, it did remind me kind of of uh, PlayStation 3 sort of uh, animatics, the way the, the characters sort of look, the uncanny valley uh, of their faces and stuff. Yeah, it was like heavy rain, sort of. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, like, they, they definitely look fake. Um, and the way they move, same thing. The physics wasn't yeah. quite right. But um, the music's interesting. Uh, sound design's really good. The I think the voice talent is excellent. Um, oh, yeah. they, they have a, a lot of really good actors. Um, the voice direction, I thought, was odd. Like the way they hit the lines, I probably... There's a couple of times where I was like, mm, I, I wouldn't have done it that way. But uh, I, I don't think that's the actor's fault. I mean, they, they just they do it until the director says, okay, next. You know, so um, yeah, Stephen Root's in it. Um, there's, yeah, I, I, I couldn't... I couldn't fault the voice talent yeah brian uh, cox and josh duhamel Peyton Liz, west oh, bentley's yeah, in there cox, yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's funny because i think when you hear root there's a couple of them where their voices these guys you know like someone like root he's always so distinct you know yeah and and what he's doing always has that character to it that when some like and i because I, I don't think i had my issues with him like the way he was voicing the character 
Um, because I think like when someone like him would pop up, I'd be like, it made it made me recognize how stilted some of the others were, you know. When you get someone who's yeah. sort of in their mode doing their thing, my God, Steve Root doing his thing. Why do these other people sound like we put them through a voice? You know, it's like it's just a uh, text-to-speech processor. Yes, and, and by the way, if if anyone out there is, I mean, we we did mention noir tonight, but yeah. if, if anybody's uh, a fan of the the new Perry Mason show on HBO, Stephen Root's in that, and he should have gotten an Emmy award. Oh for man, he was so good in that. He's like one of the reasons. That's a good show. That that's a really good show. Uh, yeah, I, I loved it. Yeah. Um, and 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 although there are no replicants in it or uh, you know a waterlogged Los Angeles, it is uh, not that far off from Blade Runner, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> um, really, uh, technically speaking, but um, man, yeah, that, that's yeah. a good show. So yeah, yeah. I mean, Black Lotus. It's it's a very simple. Like it remind the narrative is very simplified. It reminded me a lot of Kill Bill. There's there's a yeah horrible yeah. act that. The the one the one kind of spin they put on it is the main character was was uh, was victimized in that act, but she has amnesia, so she can't quite remember the details until later in the series. Um, but um, yeah, it 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 turns out that she is now hunting down the people responsible for committing that act, and um, uh. Yeah, I think somewhat like yeah, much like like you mentioned Zora, Zora's death being particularly poignant and brutal in Blade Runner. There's the the wife of the police chief is murdered at one point, not not on purpose. I think not by the main character, but uh, she gets murdered, uh, and that's kind of the same. Whatever, I don't know what that what what that trope is, but you know, uh, a slightly bad person is punished extraordinarily harshly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whatever that concept is that happens in this series. And it did bother me. I, I, I felt bad that she died, but um, uh, in any case, it's, it gets more interesting. Uh, there's, there's a, a blade runner that is, you know, flying around in a fancy car that sometimes comes when the police call him. Sometimes he doesn't. Uh, and eventually um, the main character and him and, um, the uh the the other characters that are involved in the oh, the oh right and there's a there's sort of a helper of the main character we don't really know where his loyalties lie and those three paths sort of cross at the tail end of the show like the, the third act of of the series so to speak last four or five episodes and um then it gets really good uh, i was excited until the very end so i hope they do more but um yeah that's my review yeah, I, I'm I'm basically in agreement with you on this one. I think um, Victor, for the most part, because uh, you, particularly the you mentioned the animation, like the backgrounds and stuff look great. Um, my issue with that animation is it's just what you said. It's a, it's it is feels like last gen, and and I think that that last gen was always like I think when you see that it it never looked completely finished, right or right. Like you you always it always felt like a placeholder. Just wait till we can do something better. You know, it's like when I when I watch like the Polar Express with my kids, it has that don't worry, something better is coming. Look to it, you know. And you know, like like they knew in the moment that this this isn't hundred percent successful, but it's what we could do. And yeah, but, but I think like you and I were chatting online when we were watching this, yeah. and and you mentioned uh, uh, Love, Death, and Robots. Yes. That, yep. Yeah, I mean, with stuff like that floating around, how did these guys get the gig? For uh, well, and that's what I'm wondering. I don't know if it's a budget thing, you know, because maybe it's easier, you know, because we talked. There's several episodes. Um, there was season two and even season one. So I, I have two minds on it. You know, 
Uh, you could go that love, death, and robots way where we have extraordinarily realistic, uh, and it didn't even have to be extraordinarily realistic, just better than this, you know, realistic a- uh, animation that is photorealistic. I mean, there was, uh, and uh, and you can catch these on Netflix, and I, I think I would say that show, we're not reviewing that show, but that show is very worthwhile. Uh, hit or miss maybe with some of the episodes, but I think he could have gone that way with a much more realistic uh, animation style that looked like something like Pop Squad, Snow in the Desert, is another very Blade Runner style story. Uh, yeah. That the looks of those, if that if this show had looked like that, even the slower episodes, it would have been amazing. You know, it would have yeah. really tied me back to Blade Runner. As it is, I found myself like overlooking the animation a lot. Um, you know, I think the music's interesting. I again, it's another. Uh, I, I probably feel more like this with this one than than I did with the Blade Runner uh, twenty forty nine, where it's just like yeah. the music it's kind of still just trying to, it's trying to be sort of a facsimile to a degree uh, in a, in a storyline that's about facsimiles, but it's not bad. It's, it's, it's good enough. I think um, yeah. the other direction I could have gone is I honestly, even though I know that there's the stuff's a dime a dozen these days, had it gone traditional 2d uh, anime style. I'd have been happy with that too. I think that would have been a yeah. better choice than what's done here. Um, would you've had to work a little harder to really tie to Blade Runner? Maybe, but I think then you would have a stylized world that we understand this is because this still feels, I don't know how you feel, it still feels to me like the Blade Runner anime. It's still, uh, you know, it, there's a, a bit of the ghost of the ghost in the shell in this as well. You know, I think mm-hmm. particularly early on, I was feeling a lot of that. Although I concur with you that the story is more simplistic than that. It really is a kind of revenge story. There are some wrinkles to it early on, and there are more wrinkles later on. I think later on is when it really feels, and not even so much like Ghost in the Shell, the classic like film, and then the sequels, but they the Ghost in the Shell solid state anime that existed. Uh, it feels like those these two things are almost siblings in a sense. Um, not the same universe, but the same sort of spirit or intention. And so... Yeah. The first four episodes or so of this, or, or maybe even long more than that, uh, there is the feel that, you know what, this is definitely Blade Runner the anime. And I'm hitting a lot of the tropes, and I'm thinking it's just fine, and it's in the Blade Runner world. But there is a question of why, for me, at least early on. Like, why is this Blade Runner? You know, why does this need to be Blade Runner? Like, what are we, what is this bringing to the world? And that does get answered, and I think in a, in a, in a good way. Uh, and I'm not saying that this, this is this dovetails with a lot of what we've previously seen is and that's kind of what's good about it you know it's telling its own story but i think it does enrich that world ultimately and i am looking forward to more of it um if someone came to me and said guess what we're going to trade up the animation style hope no one minds well i certainly wouldn't mind (laughs) no i wouldn't mind either um i think i think that that would be good uh so not, I don't really have anything negative to say about it i mean i think it's again it's something better than i thought it would be when I saw that it was, uh, to me, the animation is the weakest thing about it. Yes. Yeah. I, I would say, uh, yeah, if you need to get some cutting edge a- animation in your life, see love, death and robots first, then see this. Yeah. Um, but, but it is, it's cool for Blade Runner fans and it's, it's not bad. And, uh, the payoff is, is good in the, in the final few episodes. So. Yeah, I think if we're rating this, I give I go about a seven for this, you know, total. Yeah, one, yeah total. same. Um, but it's it's worth seeing. It's on HBO Max right now. I'm not sure if it is can be located anywhere else. Uh, but it, it the storytelling is good, and I and I think what is cool is they you know it, it seems to prove that you can still tell some pretty good stories in this in the world that that exists here that Dick originally conceived of, and I like that element of it a lot. Yeah. 
Me too. So, um, yeah. Hey, and, and for a for a for a forty year old movie to still be inspiring work that still has, you know, then not just the things that actually have Blade Runner's name attached to them, but that have uh, that the Blade Runner has inspired over the years. You know, I think that that's still for for better and worse. You know, I think we've definitely got a lot yeah. of things that that have the Blade Runners inspired that really aren't that great, but we have plenty. I, I mean. Apart from real life, apart I mean, from real think, life, so, yes, yeah, indeed, you, you, indeed. You keep seeing, yeah, independent companies going. All right, we got the flying car. Here it is. <laughs> uh, every few years, it pops up. You're like, oh yeah. You know that seems oh. beautiful, but you know what? We never see in any of these films. Well, no, I guess we kind of saw in the fifth one was the traffic jam. Oh yeah, no, it it totally doesn't work. I mean, <laughs> it would suck. Just think about. It. Yeah, I mean, if you have more than two of them in the sky, there's going to be an accident. <laughs> you, you imagine one of those things just hurling through a sky, like in, into somebody's office building. <laughs> yeah, but but they look great. Yeah, movies, they do. So. They do look great. That's why I do love the fifth element. And there's a lot of elements of, of that movie where it is sort of like, here's like the here's the here's the intersection between the Jetsons and French anime and the fifth and and Blade Runner, right? Yeah, um, totally. But. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I have anything else to say other than uh, it's, it's. I think the the original film's still a masterpiece. The the, the book is amazing. Um, the the sequel book is not amazing, and Blade Runner twenty forty nine is a great film, and uh, Black yep. Lotus is a fun fun series. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I read. I missed the announcement, but I read online that. Um... Amazon's going to do a Blade Runner 2099 live action TV series. Um, I don't know when it's coming, but they supposedly announced it a little bit earlier this year. So that I could, I've, I'm, I think I could be into that. I mean, I think that, um, and I think that honestly, that probably uh, suits it, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, think, um, I think it could be good. I think I, that that would be very interesting, and I, I I'm hope yeah we'll hear some more. I'm still waiting to hear any more about back in 2021. They mentioned that there the Dark City was becoming a TV series, so we'll see. Oh. Yeah, that, um, yeah. Sometimes these things don't come to pass, but yeah, no, no, uh, that, I, I'd, I'd love to see that. I love Dark City. So yeah, me too. I, to me, I like after seeing Blade Runner in the in you know, the mid 90s, like the I remember going to Dark City and being like, okay, wow, this is like you know. It's that same feeling, <laughs> in a sense. Um, yeah, and yeah, totally. And another movie that deals with you know is life a simulation, <laughs> and what does it mean to be human, and all that good stuff. Yeah, but, that's true. Um, yeah, this has been a ton of fun, Victor. Um, and I, I, I hope that the next time you're hearing, uh, well, the next time you'll probably be hearing Victor and I speaking will be about um, the X Files. But I hope that uh, after that we will be reviewing some books, right? <laughs> <laughs> or some stories yes. or something. So I'd love to we'll be on top of that. Yeah, maybe we can start weaving them into the X Files, or um, or yeah, maybe we'll get off our asses and do a a book a book. Podcast. It's more off uh, of my ass, but yeah, I need to, <laughs> let me make that happen. Anyway, Victor, uh, why don't you let everybody know where they can find you and and your work? And also, before we do go, uh, Victor, uh, you had pointed out um, a short story that you wrote that uh that in some ways kind of dovetails uh with with the kind of fiction that blade runner is and if you want to kind of plug that too i know that it's out there on uh, you know that it can be purchased uh and let it let everybody know uh where the rest of your work is 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, well, if you ever want to find anybody listening, if they ever want to find my work, uh, best thing to do is just check out my Twitter feed. I'm at dime store Caesar on Twitter or Instagram. Every time I publish something, I post it there. And, um, yeah, the, the story, I'm, I'm glad you're into it. The, the story I published was, it, it's funny. I, I, you know, I wrote a bunch of stories that I collected into a collection called the sound of fear, which is available through Amazon. Um, and, uh, it's, there are short stories that are themed around sound. Um, most of them are horror stories, but there's a couple of fantasy and a couple of crime stories in there. And, um, this was more of a hard science fiction splatterpunk story, but it, since it didn't really embrace the audio theme, um, I didn't collect it in the sound of fear. Um, so the only place you can get it is, um, the anthology was originally published in, which is called years best transhuman SF 2017. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a good book. There's, there's other, there's other good stories in there. Um, there's a, there's actually a story from Philip Gillette's wife, you know, Philip Gillette that wrote almost all the love, death and robots. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, she's in there. Um, it's a good one. So, yeah, uh, my story is basically it, it's just a um, or it's a revenge story. It's very short, um, and it's it's just about a a Chinese dude who's adopted by uh, a sort of high tech Japanese family that um, has a corrupt head at its head, and um, he when he learns of this, he goes about taking revenge in a very creative way. Um, <laughs> that's it. I just, I, I think I what you know, I always try to challenge myself with something when I write a new story. And I think with this, I wanted to see how gory I could possibly get and s- still have it released in mainstream fiction. <laughs> like, the answer is pretty gory. <laughs> it's pretty gory. Yeah. yeah. It, it's gross. Like I, I gave it to, a, you know, I, I have a peer review system, like usually before I send it to a publisher, I'll send it to one or two friends of mine that I exchange, you know, other writers that I exchange mm-hmm. stories with. And uh, my friend Danielle uh, read this and she was like, her first comment was just gross. <laughs> 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 and that's what I was going for. So I, I consider that a success. Um, but anyway, yeah, I write non-gory stuff too. I mean, everything in Sound of Fear is pretty PG-13. Um, but uh, but this was, this was also, this stood out in that way. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, so you can find me at Dime Store Caesar or just visit my website. It's vhrodriguez.wordpress.com and all my stuff's there too. So, yep, it's digital. It'll never die. <laughs> unless the blackout occurs. Uh, yeah, unless the blackout. But chances are I'll die before these these social media things do. That's what we all hope, right? <laughs> before it gets too bad. Um, and get, get, a, get a print copy, right? Because you can of, of the sound of fear. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get a print copy. You can. Yeah. It's a cool, the, the print, the print job they did is great. Um, it's, it's a cool book to have. And, um, yeah, I, I also just want to thank you, uh, Nathan for having me on the show again. It's, I always have a blast talking with you. Um, I hope we did a good show, uh, write us if we did. Um, and, um, I hope we'll do another one again soon. Yeah, we will. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a pleasure to always have you on Victor. Thanks so much. And, uh, 
what we'll do, yeah, uh, let us know. And uh, you don't need to let us know if it's bad. I'm just kidding. But uh, <laughs> so here's the deal. Blade Runner 2049 on Blu-ray, uh, still sealed in the package because I apparently do this too. I buy things and forget that I bought them. Uh, yeah. Dave Becker and I were talking about this and, and Trey Wetzner like, oh, we'll look and say, hey, I just bought this a second time. So <laughs> I haven't done it too many times, but this case where I did and I found it and I, um, I would... Uh, Love to send somebody a copy of Blade Runner 2049. All I'm asking that you do is go over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, preferably five-star review. It helps us get the word out there. And then uh, at the time this episode comes out, I will put a um, a post up in the Facebook group, Phantom Galaxy. And uh, either you can either leave a post there and say, hey, I left a review. You put your name there. And uh, we you'll be in the running to, to get this. And then we will... Um, uh, we will pull a name out of the hat and send uh, send the copy out. So, uh, and, and what I will do too, is just go over to Apple podcasts and any reviews that have been there. Uh, and, and the truth is if you've put up a review just recently and it isn't within the space of this time, we will, we'll consider reviews that have been up there probably, you know, uh, for, for most of this year. So if you've already put a review in, in the last few months, no worries to do another one. Uh, if you haven't ever put up a review, get over there, throw up a review. Uh, let me know that you did and you'll be in the running to get a copy of this. Uh, who knows? I may even throw in my copy of Blade Runner 2, The Edge of Human, if you're interested in it. Um, oh, yeah. uh, well, you know, I, I think definitely enter the contest if you're listening to this yes. to get uh, Blade Runner 2049. It's it's a movie worth owning because uh, usually when it gets on a streaming service, it doesn't last long. So no, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah, I don't know why that is, but uh, but you're 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 if you don't own it. Um, your alternative is probably going to be renting it if you don't win this contest. So good luck to everybody. <laughs> there you go. Victor puts up a immediacy behind it. I'm like, yeah, do it if you want. And, but yeah, thank, thanks so much. If you guys have any comments, you can hit me up at phantomcasts at uh, gmail.com. Uh, Phantom Galaxy has got a lot of stuff going on. I'd say we have plenty of episodes uh, to, to bridge the uh, hiatus that Bill's on when Bill comes back. We'll be jumping right back into more stuff. We have plenty of stuff that's happening now, and we will be getting the uh, the the, the uh, podcast involving um, you know books, the written word up and up and going. And my goal is to get it up before the for the summer uh, completely ends here, and we'll, we'll we'll see how that goes. We do have X Files season five coming up, and we will also be doing a. Uh, uh, we're, we're working on something fun related to the movie, the X-Files fight the future. So check that out. Victor will be along for the ride on that. Victor, we're going to have to get you on. Cause I don't think you've done VOD roulette yet with us. Have you? No, no. So we, we need to, that's always a fun time. It, it can be a bit of a crap shoot. If you, if we get the wrong movie, <laughs> but sometimes it's even more fun. You know, we got one coming up um, uh, that when you hear this, we have one coming up um, that, that Brian Scott is on and uh, Brian Scott and a buddy of mine, uh, Seth, who used to be a, a previous co-host of the podcast uh, uh, a bit before um, Bill came on. And so th- they join us and we had some movies. Um, it was an inter- interesting bag of movies. But anyway, I don't have anything else, Victor. Uh, and you have anything else? No. Okay. Well, everyone, this is the Phantom Galaxy signing out. Everyone take care. Bye. If you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. 
And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Thank you.